0: Hey guys, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. This week we're going to be discussing Interstellar, a 2014 Christopher Nolan spectacle film. There will be pretty heavy spoilers right off the bat. We recommend you watch the movie or else this discussion will probably be very boring. So John, what is Interstellar about? Thanks, Mike. Today I'd like to ask our listeners to imagine a world without armies. A world without political strife and turmoil. A world without the dredges of a nine to five job keeping you away from your family. Christopher Nolan's Interstellar is a beautiful portrait of that promised land. Yes, you're only seeing your kids so much because you and them and pretty much everyone you know have had to become farmers to avoid starvation. Yes, there are no armies and political strife because of massive hunger wars that obliterated societal institutions decades ago. And yes, the bright light of human knowledge is flickering away under the burden of a culture without long-term survival prospects. But when you're at the ripe old age of 46 and looking back, you won't remember those details. You'll remember the quality time you got to spend with your family.
1: You forgot about uh, when you get sent into space on a decade that makes you miss your family's entire I, life. I consider that. I also <laughs> wanted
0: to mix in the uh, the dust at some point, and it didn't. I, could, I couldn't I could sell it. Uh, welcome to this. <laughs> welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. guys once again welcome to this film could be your life a film podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously uh i'm joined as always by my friend mike overstreet hello and i'm jonathan divine like i said this week we're going to be discussing interstellar interstellar was a 2014 science fiction epic film uh directed by christopher nolan Mwah. starring Matthew McCauley, our boy Christopher, starring, starring Matthew McConaughey, <sighs> go on. Sorry, Anne Hathaway <laughs> and Jessica Chastain. It portrays I this. dystopian future. Okay, <laughs> it displays... What are you? I'm trying to get through. I just need to get. We're gonna do the Nolan thing. <sighs> It's set in a dystopian future where humanity is struggling to survive and follows a group of astronauts who travel through a wormhole near Saturn in search of a new home for mankind. So there's a lot to unpack with this movie, mostly because of one guy, the director, Christopher Nolan. Uh, Mike and I often will be texting about these movies as we're leading up to the podcast. I texted Mike a few days ago. Christopher Nolan is probably, I think, is the most divisive contemporary filmmaker for movie fans. Yeah. Probably doesn't apply for just regular people. They seem they seem on board just judging by his box office receipts. But movie fans, it's very conflicted. I think it's a pretty even 50 50 divide, right? Yeah, absolutely. That uh, on the one side, I, I would say there's some movie fans who basically perceive him as the last savior of original filmmaking, the last bastion of truly, you know, original creative ideas, pushing these interesting concepts. The other half of movie fans, basically, I think, think of him as saccharin, as a hack, as washed, not washed, because they would say he's never been up there, <laughs> but basically say that he's so overblown with his themes and his sometimes a little bit B-movie writing and... A lot of other hosts of things that they have issues with, they think he's essentially terrible. Uh, Before we usually start these episodes by asking about our history with the movie, but I want to start by Mike asking, what is your history with Christopher Nolan? Uh, Because in addition, I guess the thing I left out there is that in addition to being very divisive or perhaps why he's so divisive is that he's also incredibly popular. These yeah. are some of the biggest movies over the last 20 years comes back to this one guy. Yeah. Uh, so, so I don't know what's, what's your past with him? What do you, what's your take? I mean, it's really, it's really funny
1: because I think more than any director, the response to Christopher Nolan has most, Uh, impacted my thoughts on a director in a weird way sure like when i saw memento i love memento it's one of my favorite movies um and it is kind of quintessential to what i like about nolan which is that it's very simple it has something incredibly creative at its structural center you know it has great performances and it's a great movie for what it's trying to do right and then i Mm -hmm. i mean i felt the same way about inception where i'm like what a great action film um and i kind of just left it at that and then i started to read kind of responses to him or people's thoughts on him and it is fascinating because on one hand i i i read stuff about nolan where i'm just like this dude is way too criticized because it's really people sure. picking apart movies that are either at their roots, action films or kind of spectacle sci-fi, and they're not really treat like treat sissies or whatever on existentialism or deep thoughts, and mm-hmm. like I remember people picking apart Inception, and you're just like this movie is is <laughs> is like, not a what are you doing? It's just like a it's an action yeah. movie. I, at least that's how I re, like responded to it when I first saw it, right. It's an excuse for really big set pieces, and people are like, "Well, this part of it doesn't make sense." And here's how dreams work, and you're like, "Who cares, right?" And I I mean, another one is the third Batman with Bane. You know, (laughs) anyway, um, (laughs) The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, when people were really going to town on it for like absurd reasons, like they're treating it like it's Heat or it's like The Godfather Part Two, or like they're criticizing there will be blood, and you're like, "Dude, have you seen action movies?" The majority of human history has made superhero movies that are absolute trash. And this one is objectively yeah. better than many of the other ones and it's not as yeah. good as the first two, but that's okay. It's not supposed to be that great. So, all that to say, like I'm always I was always baffled by that. But then at the same mm-hmm. time, the more I read people who are like huge fans of his work who do treat his movies as intellectual masterpieces or Um, or even started to think about his own way of like having a relationship with those expectations, right? Where he kind of very intentionally sometimes designs his movies to make you think there's more going on than there really is. I started to have my own thoughts on him change, which I don't think is fair Sure. because ultimately, and I'm wrapping up these thoughts. When I sit down with a Nolan film, I always enjoy watching a Nolan film, but I don't think it's more than what I tend to perceive it actually is which is a sure. exciting, thrilling, set piece driven, usually a neat idea, structurally sound, technically executed, um, almost perfectly action film, 99% of the time. Yep. That was a long answer, but that is my my no, no, no. take on the history
0: with him. I think that's fine, because like I said, I think it's a very complex topic, really, for film people today. Uh, I, w- I would summarize maybe a little bit that you're, you kind of found a third way there. You're saying he's not the savior of all modern cinema he's not you know potboiler trash he's he's making original movies he's putting some interesting ideas into them and uh in a sense that's all i need for a good time at the theater so yeah yeah and i guess yeah i guess where i land on him today so
1: my history of him is like oh what enjoyable films i'm gonna summarize it and then it got you know murky with basically how people respond to the films good or bad right And how that eventually changed how I reflected on him. And I think where I land today is that Christopher Nolan is simply, I would say, one of the last, if not the last. And that depends on how you think about James Cameron's absence. But he's at least one of the last great spectacle directors. And he's probably the last, other than Cameron, director whose name alone creates a blockbuster out of a movie. Now, that might change with Tenet bombing. But at least (laughs) right now he is a just a master craftsman when it comes to spectacle and i think that's very rare yeah. these days um
0: and i think that also has to do
1: with i think i do think he's one of the most creative technical directors and cinematic directors that there are so
0: yeah anyway he also sniffs I, his own actually, farts
1: but whatever
0: yeah obviously that actually is a great segue it's a kind of where i was thinking about this or where i was weighing this uh I would say, you know, I was writing down my thoughts about, about Nolan, and I realized he is a spectacle filmmaker, I think. And the thing people may not realize is just how rare that is. Like you were saying, uh, we could go we could go on this for hours, but I'll try to just summarize my thoughts very briefly. I kind of think that Jurassic Park was a very big turning point. Mm. Before then, movies dealt in spectacle... Uh, not quite easily, but you know, everything you were seeing was, was ha- had to have a lot of work behind it because yeah. it was hard to make spectacle. And then with the advent of, of computer generated images, ideas themselves became kind of cheap. So like anyone can have a good idea for a action scene. Sure. But actually executing it to look really, really good became much more difficult. So in a way I guess I'm saying spectacle became a lot cheaper. So it became much more diverse and spread out. Meaning that to actually make true spectacle that delivers, that's surprising, became much harder. Mm. And you and me, Mike, I think are the first people to grow up in that world, because we were born right around when Jurassic Park came out. So with all that to say, I actually wrote down exactly what you were saying, that there's basically only two names in the game, if you even count uh, James Cameron, because he's only had two movies in the last 20 years. I think both of them apply to this. But really, I think Nolan is the only guy who's making movies where the only goal is to take the breath out of an audience. Yeah. And I guess that's my biggest thing is that, you know, I, I'm, I, I, think, I feel like I'm probably with you in terms of I don't necessarily dive into these movies on the, uh, on the intellectual side the way some people do, nor do I hack at them in, from the artistic side the way other people do. I just find them fun to watch. And I just really, really appreciate that there are, in the age of Disney badly remaking 90s movies and endless Marvel movies, which I do really like, but still endless Marvel movies and endless cinematic universes and whatever, there is something so, so special about true original filmmaking that doesn't draw on anything, that is spectacular, that is like i said drawing the breath out of an audience yeah absolutely um, yeah and i th- I think
1: I, I mean i think that's not given enough praise I, I think sure i think his forte at that and again like i was trying to hint at some of that's brought on himself like he leans into what people think and say and put on to him as a way of selling and creating hype for his movies um yeah. And obviously, his thoughts that Tenet was going to save movie theaters is possibly a very weird take. Is bad. Yeah. This but... <laughs> is
0: possibly a very weird take. Do you draw a connection between him and Elon Musk, or is that just me? Uh, I get the Do you vibes. Know what I'm talking I get about? those vibes. Like the yeah. strange relationship with his own, you know, personal, public personality and the way he kind of fans flames that you're like, I don't think you should be fanning those flames. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. that's I, a digression. I get that. Yeah. And I think,
1: on the other hand, of, I I do think of Nolan very positively, but I do, I should at least acknowledge that if there is one criticism I would levy against Nolan across the board, it is that he is a very frustrating director to me. What I really like about Cameron in particular is that James Cameron seems to know who he is and what he's trying to make. Um, He knows that it's when he's making a film, that's not particularly deep. He doesn't try to make it look deep. When he's making a film yeah. that's trying to raise big ideas, he invests the time and the energy to actually make those ideas land, right? I think yeah. the problem or what frustrates me about Christopher Nolan is that he has such divergent extremes all within the same movie, right? He has parts sure. I think actually Interstellar will dive into event soon, eventually, years from now. <laughs> um but Interstellar is like welcome almost... to the Christopher Nolan podcast, <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Christopher Nolan We're podcast. Talk about Christopher Nolan, yeah. Um, but yeah, Interstellar is the epitome of kind of the Christopher Nolan experience. Like parts are expertly crafted to avoid exposition, like they move quick, and that's good because he's not trying to get yeah. you sunk. And then there are other parts that just have way too much exposition. Like there are just scenes where someone's explaining something to you for way too long, and you're like, what is going on? The movie is you know, at times really fast and at other times overindulgent to the point that you end up with a movie that's wildly too long, which we'll talk about later, right? It has mm-hmm. unbelievable set pieces, but then it drags and gets boring and long scenes that are just totally unnecessary. And honestly, when you think about what's being said, you were talking about B-movie lines. You're just like, this is crap, right? Yeah. And all all that really to say, he's a, a, a frustrating director because I don't always get the sense that he knows what kind of what kind of movie he's trying to make or how deep of a movie he's trying to make and i tend to believe that movies are better when you when you lean into one of those extremes and don't try to play both sides right um yeah
0: anyway does that make sense i i yeah i actually completely agree I, i would i'll just further the Cameron comparison very briefly because I think it is a fascinating comparison. I want you to know my heart was being warmed as you were praising know, James Cameron. <laughs> you you could sense it, right? Like we're, yeah. we're on opposite coasts of the United States, and, and <sighs> I was just, I was just, my eyes were closed. I was just so happy. Uh, Avatar, but sucks. you're right. I, I, <laughs> okay, well, let's all calm down. I would say that like the another way of describing what you're saying, I, I think Nolan kind of seems to lack total control over his product in the way other... Like, if you think of the, the golden age of Spielberg, if you think about Cameron, if you think about a lot of these extremely competent um uh, spectacle filmmakers, they always seem to be very, like you said, self-aware, very in control of what their movie is saying. Yeah. Nolan, it seems very scattershot. Yes. And it, it, it seems very, like... Yeah, like he lets an idea in that I'm like that doesn't help the movie. Why is yeah. that in here? Yeah, yes. um, So, so he struggles with that. I think uh, I will say there's some movies where he's better than others. I think Dunkirk is succeeds largely because it's one of his most focused movies. Yeah, you absolutely. could say the same thing about Memento, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this, you know, this isn't a blanket statement. In other no. words, this varies depending on what movie we're talking about. That is, however, a decent segue into the movie we are going to talk about, Interstellar. So, uh, we start the podcast normally by talking about our history with the movie. We've just done all of this setup about Nolan. Uh, I want to put, I- I'm going to go first if that's okay. Yeah. I want to put you into the, my shoes uh, in 2014. Okay. Christopher Nolan was the most exciting director mm. I could think of. And if you think about his his light his lead up to this movie, uh, basically I think the the key starting place is the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight I consider one of the most phenomenal movie watching experiences I ever had. Absolutely, it really took over. I don't know if this was your experience, but it really took over like culture for me oh, for yeah. a little bit. I like, still remember me the, and my friends the
1: office joke where they all dress up as the Joker to the Halloween
0: party. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, yeah that was like real it, life that's all i'm trying to say <laughs> but,
0: yeah if if you were too young for that that was what things were like me and my friends went to see that movie i think four or five times yeah genuinely in theaters yeah. we saw it, it was opening just, night. it was yeah i saw it the day after because i couldn't get tickets opening night uh um, it was yeah i know right it was a huge thing and it was it was a spectacular movie i'm sure we're gonna do it at some point so this is the dark night that, podcast this is the dark night podcast welcome uh, he goes from the dark night. He hits inception, which regardless of the, the, you know, I think kind of cold takes looking back on it that are negative. I think at, at least at the time was, was really, awesome. really big and people yeah. loved it. Yeah, it was great. I actually, I, I just want to make a brief note because this is our podcast. It we take as long as we want. I want to make a brief note. We were talking earlier about spectacle filmmaking. The scene where uh joseph gordon levitt is fighting the guy in the hallway oh my god as yeah. the gravity is shifting i mean i said it earlier the theater was everyone's jaws were on the floor yeah and absolutely. just think about that that today with cgi it's hard to make people do that like we've seen everything but that looked so good and yep. it was so it was just crazy i, I just can't put words for it. everyone was just yeah you were just losing your minds in the theater um He hits that. He hits Dark Knight Rises. And this is where maybe we're starting to think that the wheels might be coming off a little bit. Uh, You know, but I think even then, like, it wasn't a bad movie. Like you said, it was just maybe not as much as what we wanted it to be. It didn't live up to the hype. You thought darkness was your ally. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That was... (laughs) A get, great reason get, why. You get ready for understand the Bane voice show. this entire podcast, just to find out. Honestly, <laughs> you could do the whole podcast in the Bane voice. I'd, I'd sign off on that. So the wheels were maybe coming off the wagon. And personally, though, where I was at the time is I thought, you know, he very he stated that he didn't really want to make this movie. I don't yeah. know if you remember yeah, all this yeah, drama. Yeah, yeah. After That Humble he basically... Died. Yeah. And, and so he... He basically made it as a but on the condition that he got to make other movies he wanted to, right? He basically you know, he parlayed it into making other original films, the first of which was Inception, and the second of which was Interstellar. Yeah. So that gave us so so first of all, that meant that we could kind of write off Dark Knight Rises as like, oh well he was forced into it, he didn't want to do it, that's why it suffered. Uh but then you have Interstellars coming up. And I remember that first trailer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my God, mm-hmm. Nolan's going to space. Yep. Nolan's got there's Nolan's black got holes. McConaughey on the he's <laughs> he's got black holes. He's got McConaughey on like one of the best career revitalization moments ever. We'll talk about that later. It's it's it looks incredible. He's got black holes. It looks like two thousand one meets I don't know. It just looks like everything you ever wanted. And going back to what you were saying earlier about nolan's own problems i think he set it up to be everything oh everybody. yeah yeah he he was clear that he was like this is gonna say all these exciting things this is gonna i don't know we were expecting or at least i was expecting a revolution in yeah. filmmaking i thought this was it well,
1: yeah and it, then i saw well yeah, go ahead real quick it reminds me of um uh, what's that terrible prequel to the alien movies that really scott made uh, uh prometheus uh, prometheus yeah
0: i'm yeah, a great big example. hater
1: big hater on prometheus sorry guys Um, but it was like that where it's like Ridley Scott's telling a movie or making a movie about what happens when humanity meets their creator and the creator wants to destroy them. And you're thinking like Blade Runner and alien and all these really cool movies he's made and he's tackling this awesome topic and oh my gosh, you can't
0: wait. And then it's like a fart. But anyway, go on. Yeah. The hype meters are off the charts and it's, and nothing can live up to that. And frankly, interstellar didn't live up to that. Yep. I, uh, I, I think I liked it when I first saw it. I definitely didn't love it. I definitely felt there was significant problems. Uh, but this is where the story gets a little interesting. So I'd never rewatched this movie. And I don't think I even realized that uh, until I rewatching neither. it this most recent time. I but I ha- yeah, I, I had not seen it since that first time in the theaters. And Mike, I two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, I put this movie on. And I'm watching it, and I'm waiting for the stuff that I really hate. But the more I watch it, the more I find that I'm really kind of enjoying it. And I, I even am starting to really love it. Mm-hmm. And I get to the end, and I realize that I, I think this movie was hurt more by expectations yes. than almost any other movie I'd seen. Yep. Watching it already knowing what it was about and already knowing where it was going... I kind of fell in love with it. I'll yeah. be honest. I I I didn't quite 180, but to let you guys, I'll also to, to open the curtain for you guys a little bit of how we make this podcast. Uh, Mike and I have discussed that we find great discussion doesn't necessarily come from the movies that we most love. That we like, we we find that it's probably better to pick movies with a few problems. We picked Interstellar explicitly because we had significant problems with it. Uh, And I still do, but I found that I was just completely on board this last time. Like I really did. I I revised up everything I thought about this movie. Mm -hmm. I, the the rewatch a week and a half ago, I even wrote down and we don't have to litigate this because it would be probably too long of a conversation. I even wrote down, is this Nolan's best movie? And then I wrote down next to it. Or is this maybe my favorite movie? See, of his? that's not his best, but my favorite. That's a different yeah. conversation. Yeah. yeah. I, I would not say this is his best movie. It might just be my favorite, though, mm-hmm. which we will litigate, I'm sure, as we get into it. Yeah, but yeah, all of that to say, that's a long story, but this is maybe the biggest turnaround I've had for a movie in recent times. So I wanted to set it up. Uh, Mike, what about you? What's your history with this movie specifically? Yeah,
1: it's almost identical, so I'll keep it short. I mean, I wrote in all caps, IMAX baby, um, which I will say this. I saw this, and I mean, this was one of those movies that I was just like, could not wait to see in IMAX, and it did live up to the hype on that front. Like, this was a movie that on a massive screen with, like, surround sound, and, oh, it's like pushing you into the seat as they go through space, right? Yeah. But- Beyond the sheer visuals of it, I I definitely believe I came into this movie on the hype wave. I mean, I, I think I wrote down I was still deeply in the palm of big Christopher Nolan industry. <laughs> um, so like, and I think I had also written off his other movie that had disappointed me, which was the third Batman, which still I think is overly criticized for dumb reasons. But but it was a disappointment, right? But like you had said, there was all this stuff coming out about it and you're like, oh, he didn't want to do it. So you kind of write it off. And man, when I when I saw it, I was really torn because in truth and John, you and I say all the time, it's not a plot hole if you don't catch it while watching watching the movie. Right. Yeah. This was the first Christopher Nolan movie I watched were in the theater. I was like, what? Like, wait. What the heck is going on? Yeah, I caught yep. problems with this movie while I was watching it the first time, and and I basically had the same experience. I did not rewatch it because I was so, I don't know. I was just like so let down by it. And I mean, it's really I would funny. say
0: maybe even apathetic towards it. Is yeah, how I felt. Like I, I just never.
1: Yeah, apathy is a great yeah. word because like I didn't even try to see Tennet. Like apparently, this apathy yeah. just saturated all of my Christopher Nolan viewing experience at this point um, because the hype for Tenet was so big. And I was like, it's going to be a letdown, guys. Don't watch it. And I came back to it on this rewatch, and it's just a fun movie. It's actually really funny. It's almost like I returned to that first stage of watching Christopher Nolan movies that I was telling you about, where I just let it be an action movie this time or an adventure movie or a spectacle. And I, I mean, yes, there are still pretty gaping plot holes but for the most part i i never like was bored i was never uninterested i was always impressed by something that was on the screen i enjoyed it so much more once those expectations had faded with time so i'm with you
0: 100% yep probably and and it's funny cuz this comes up a lot i think this again this expectation the way that a movie is set up going into it or really any art so dramatically influences you. This is maybe one of the most extreme examples, though. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, where is it? Real quick, again, I don't want to get into this too much. Uh, where does this sit for you for, let's say, your personal favorite Nolan films? Is it still pretty low? Is um, it? Did it move up a little bit? That's a good question.
1: I think for nostalgic reasons, Memento is higher than it probably should be. I just sure. remember watching Memento at a very informative age and was just like, oh, yes, I love this movie. This I think so cool. for
0: me, my my version of that, because I didn't see Memento until much later, yeah. my version of that is the prestige. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. The, I saw that when I, I think that was the first movie of his I saw. It, it had all of those effects on me. So I will always look very fondly back. And that's a perfect but, example
1: sorry, where I saw that after the Nolan renaissance was over. I went back to it and was just not terribly moved by it. Right. And I think, sure. I I could accept that. Yeah. Um, but objectively the ones that are my favorite, I mean, dark Knight is the top. I freaking love that movie. That's Um, I think I enjoy the visuals and spectacle of inception more than interstellar, but I put them on the same level of quality. Um, that makes sense to me. And
0: I'm surprised this
1: might be the third. I don't know. Um, I'm surprised oh, Dunkirk didn't. is sorry. Dunkirk is probably my second after Dark Knight.
0: There we go. Yeah. there we go. I <laughs> yeah, was sorry. I, I forgot I, about I, Dunkirk. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for it. I am like weirdly not warm to Dunkirk. I like it a lot, but we've talked about that before. Yeah, I love that. So movie. We, and, um, yeah. So that, that's what I was expecting you to say. So when I, I saw that
1: in theaters but. and you didn't, and that's like a movie yeah, that you talked about. Yeah, it's so wildly different outside of theaters, which all of his movies yeah. are. But that one in particular
0: yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, stick around after the break. We're going to get into actually talking about Interstellar and not uh, <laughs> all of these things around it. Okay, guys, welcome back. Uh, for this section of the podcast, we basically have broken down, we have a few different uh, categories of how we talk about this movie. Uh, the first thing is we we basically break down why this movie works. Then we'll get into what holds this movie back. And then we both prepared some stray thoughts, which are exactly what it says, stray thoughts. Uh, so we're starting with why this works. I'm going to start with what is, I think, could, could conceivably be the only thing we say about why this movie works. It I, I wrote, I mean, look at it. Yes. This might be the biggest triumph of style over substance ever yeah not just the space spectacle stuff but even like and this was maybe the thing that the rewatch helped on even the shots on earth even yeah. the not space stuff it's just a good looking movie yeah um i very very briefly i told mike before the the episode so i very recently purchased a big screen tv because i'm an american consumerist that uh oh, you Cap know retail Capitalist wide, obviously, but I've never had one before. I've always had like, like 32 inch TVs or something like that. So I, I bought a 50 inch TV. I splurged a little bit and this was the first movie I watched. And frankly, that was a good call. I I watched it for the podcast, Uh, but this looks so good. And the IMAX thing actually kind of carries over because I I, I don't know if this is every TV, but like when it switched to the IMAX ones, it took up the whole frame of my TV yeah. and it looks so, so good. uh I, I could keep going, but Mike, what are you what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, yeah uh, on cinema like just I would just say technically speaking, this movie is, yeah, phenomenal. It's it's like if you are going to blow smoke up Christopher Nolan's butt, it is for <laughs> his technical just mastery. Of making Again making spectacle because the cinematography Is fantastic as you pointed out And I ma- I wanted to make sure we talked about this uh, Both in space And on earth like the cinematography Is amazing um, yep. There are just some Beautifully shot scenes It has what really caught my eye This time was that it's special effects Don't feel particularly aged Which is crazy because no. it's seven years ago And usually when we watch Movies from seven years ago you you notice pretty quick like go back and watch yeah. the Avengers right compared to the new Avengers and you're gonna be like this movie looks like crap right yeah I, I was watching the wormhole scene um when they first go into it not when McConaughey yeah. goes into oh. it at the end and you're just like
0: this looks like this movie was made yesterday what the heck yeah man um and then I, I have also, a bit of oh sorry, yeah go, go ahead. ahead I was yes. just gonna say I have a bit of insight on that uh Nolan is very famously wary of digital effects. Obviously, mm. there's a lot of digital effects in this movie, but a surprising amount of this movie is physical. Yeah, uh, every exterior shot of the ship. So, like when you know the, when it looks like there's a camera locked on the outside of the ship. Yeah, that's all practical.
1: Man, that's now wild.
0: the the digital is creating like the space around it, but the ship itself and the reflections are real. Um, the Tars robots, which we'll get to a little bit later as well our combination he does a lot of combination practical physical where other directors in the last 20 years would just do all digital and it really really shows it does uh, yeah yeah remind, so, it actually yeah.
1: reminds me of jurassic park like we talked about earlier we're yeah. like this jurassic park ages so well because it does both right
0: yeah um absolutely yeah sorry you were gonna you can keep going oh
1: yeah yeah well so uh, beyond also how it looks though i mean the sound is also almost always yeah. excellent in Nolan films, but it's particularly well, sorry. Sometimes there's blah. Anyway, it's particularly good in this one. This is a, a good example of, of the way that he so effectively uses sound to both m- ramp up emotion. So like when a scene's supposed to be exciting and thrilling, it feels thrilling because the sound feeds that. And at the same time to create contrast, like, he does an amazing job in this movie at using sound when it's cutting between soundless space and then like something going on in a confined setting or something sure. going on um, in the world around them or whatever. It, it just he does such a good job of employing sound for. And again, we we're talking about what do you know what you want to do in the film? Every time he yeah. uses sound in this movie, it feels like he knows exactly what he's trying to make me feel and what he's trying to draw out of me as the viewer. And I think it's really effective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I I sort of agree I'm gonna have a why this doesn't work regarding sound, but I, I can agree in terms of the sound design yeah really really works. Uh, there's some issues with mixing, which we'll get to later sure but I totally agree the sound design itself in conjunction with the visuals, it's just it's a treat movie, right yeah it it is just a visual and, and sonic experience. Uh, I want to note real quick when still on the visual effects a little bit. That uh, which I guess this could just be a separate point of why this movie works, that so much... We'll get into some of the aspects of the story that maybe don't add up, but the science really does work. And they really do. My favorite story about the making of this movie, when it came to the black hole gargantua, they actually... They didn't make an artist's conception and then render that in a digital sphere. I don't know if you know this. They wrote a program to simulate a black hole and the effects it would have on a camera lens and the executive executive producer of this movie is Kip Thorne who is a Nobel laureate physicist and was also a consultant on all the science when they first ran the render they got that strange like warping light thing Hmm. and they thought well we must have done something wrong they showed it to him and he said oh that makes sense they generated two scientific papers out of this movie. <laughs> That's Because awesome. of the, the science that they did on the black holes huh. was like, like in the way that it curves light, was things that I, I think that people had thought of before but hadn't considered maybe in some aspects. I hope I'm not doing that injustice. Uh, but stuff like that, you just don't get from every director, right? Yeah, yeah. That is really, really cool. Uh, so yeah, the anything else on the visuals of the movie and, and the just the experience the the, the yeah yeah I just that. want
1: to spend at least one second gushing about well his set piece work is fin- fantastic but oh, the water yeah. world scene is exhilarating and I mean yeah. like exhilarating I remember it in theaters after all these years but rewatching it you know the way that that scene and that set piece is created and shot is and there are some issues that we'll talk about later. Um, but the visual of it and the sound of it is really, really, really just exciting. Um, probably more than any it of the is. other worlds they go to. And it also packs the biggest emotional punch, right? Where she probably sure. died minutes ago is a killer moment. Doyle's body yeah. floating. And then when they get back and he's like, I've I've waited years and it's been 25 years. I mean, all yeah. that scene has so much in its orbit, but the set piece itself is also just... I keep saying the word exhilarating, but that's the one that comes to mind.
0: Yeah, it's funny you said that thing earlier, though. It does appear in both my columns: why this works and why yes. this doesn't work. We'll get to that later. <laughs> we'll get to that, but later. yes, we'll get to that later. <laughs> but you're right. Yes. I, I remember what I remember from the theater is the first time that you realize that it's a wave because when they first land, it's like there's there's like mountains on the horizon i think they even say that those aren't mountains yeah and when the first shot where it pans up and it just keeps panning Mm -hmm. it's like the longest panning shot in history yeah to get to the top of this wave and you're like oh my god it's what we were saying earlier he shows you things you never imagined yes and that's the essence of spectacle filmmaking and it really does work in that context um moving on a little bit this actually does maybe play into that scene but I, I did wrote my second thing why this movie works it's acted really really well yeah the cast Yeah, I say acted because there's some questions about the writing we'll get to that later <laughs> but to start off with uh, Matthew McConaughey I kind of hinted at it earlier this was I, I forgot how hot these two Ooh, years yes. were Ooh, my doggie. guys pull it off <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street Dallas Buyers Club True Detective season Ooh. one and then this movie, is that the best Renaissance of yeah. any actor ever? It's because before then he was just a, he was the rom com guy, right? Yeah, he had well, a couple, he had like Days and Confused, I guess, and a couple things, but then it was just rom coms until suddenly 2012 ish, 2014, he's just popping off. Well, and where did so, this come from? It's so strange too because there's actually a
1: movie that came in 2012 called Mud that is really yeah. really good and he's really good in it and it was uh, financially did not do anything like no one saw it yeah and it was just one of those things where like oh no Matthew McConaughey doesn't even bring people to theaters anymore like it's it just he's washed up he's washed yeah, yeah. and then this comes out of nowhere like a tidal wave like you know the planet with the waves but hey um hey. there you go but But yeah, now you're absolutely. I I can't think of a renaissance like this. I mean, you want to think about things like, you know, um, John Travolta and Pulp Fiction and what that did to his career. But
0: this is bigger than that. I mean, this is like. And he didn't sustain that, as far as I can remember, over. I I guess he probably had at least two or three movies, but I mean, this was. This was a lot. This was He just dominated all of culture. All and of he sudden.
1: he rode that wave into a bunch of Lincoln commercials, which, you know, yeah, that's a choice. Which but whatever. somehow <laughs> works. I mean, they're iconic. <laughs> like,
0: we all remember them five years later.
1: But yeah, uh, man,
0: I have, like, such a
1: soft spot for Matthew McConaughey. I mean, even in bad movies, he's just got that, like, charm to him. And he's sure. really, really good at the <laughs> the trope of a smart, witty guy trying to solve a problem you know sure he fits that which this movie
0: relies on a lot so much like him selling that specific character yeah Yeah, and it's like and
1: it's so funny that matt damon then turns around and does that in the martian you know but it's two examples where it's like i love these actors when they're in this kind of specific role because you know on one hand he's really witty you love the scene where he tells off the guidance counselor he sets (laughs) up taking his daughter to the baseball game and he's just like And I'm just going to take her to the game. And then he smirks. And you're just like, I love this guy. I
0: love when he goes back to the truck and she says, how'd it go? I got you suspended. (laughs) It's so good. But then he also, like, you also just forget, or at least I
1: had forgotten when this movie came out and I had forgotten since the last time I watched it, how good he is at carrying emotional weight at the appropriate times because...
0: Do you what, want to talk about the scene now?
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about we the scene. Because yeah. this is what makes this movie works. Because this movie is a hollow shell without <laughs> some of the scenes in which he conveys intense and does it well, just like emotion, just humanity. Yeah.
0: So, yes, yeah, so let's talk about the scene. Let's start crying, talk John. Let's do it.
1: The so, uh, The yeah. scene
0: that we are referring to, I can set up, the scene that we're referring to uh, comes, I think, about halfway through the movie. He when he gets back from the water planet and 23 years have passed because of how close it was to the black hole and there's built up... This is such a good idea, by the way. I know. There's built up messages that his kids have been sending him. They don't know whether or not he can send it back. So uh, you get, first of all, to see them growing in despair as they keep sending them. Yeah. But he has to sit there and watch his kids age 23 years and sell i don't know it's just one of the most emotionally harrowing scenes i've ever seen and he sells it completely you're there i I, just think about people if that was bad people would have been making fun of that scene for the last eight years i haven't seen a single meme or joke about that scene maybe i've seen one meme you can't make fun of it that's you can't make fun of it yeah i mean oh, like wait, you think you can
1: no no i mean it's wrong okay. to do it's immoral it's an immoral thing <laughs> i would be personally offended if i saw someone mocking that scene um because yeah like on one hand that scene is so good because it hits at when nolan is at his best he has such creative ways of getting exposition out of the way and when he's yep. at his worst it drags which we'll get to later we keep saying that but we'll get to that later But this scene is—we have many things to say. The the
0: what this movie doesn't work. But this
1: scene is a perfect example of like think of how much world building and exposition he does in such a creative tool and an emotional tool that I know is manipulating me, but hits like a ton of bricks. It's such a good way to do that, right? And and beyond that, I mean, it starts with his big smile, you know, that Matthew McConaughey smile, yeah. And then the tears. And then there's just the weight of the life he's missed where his son gets married and the grandkids born. And then their granddad dies. And then the kid dies, which is just like, dude. Yeah,
0: which is brutal. Uh, oh, man. And then, yeah.
1: and then he ends with, I hope you're at peace. And then the screen cuts to black. And it's just like, Jesus
0: Christ. like. And I, the whole shot. Yeah. Uh, getting back to the visual design, too. Because they're in the spinning ship. So the light from the sun or not the sun from whatever is is keeps like strobing essentially on and off him right it's oh my gosh it could just be one of the best scenes nolan ever made it is um and it
1: would be it would have been really really tough in like a human moment to end on so thank god that nolan included his daughter still holding a grudge against (laughs) them and deciding to use her birthday to talk crap to him across space and time in order to remind us that he is a negligent father Um, Yes. That was a very key moment to the character. Thank goodness that this powerful, poignant scene, they were like, let's not give the daughter one. Let's just make her being a jerk for
0: no reason. (laughs) Which, once again, we will possibly get to later. Yeah. At the risk of being a little bit, uh, I guess, cheeky, maybe. We've never done this before. But, Mike, I have pulled up the Academy Awards for the year that Interstellar Mm. Uh, game. So first of all, it didn't win any or it won best visual effects, duh. It was nominated for a few uh original score, mostly technical ones, except I think score. I'm gonna read you the best actors. And you tell me if you think Matthew McConaughey bests anyone here. Okay. These are the nom these are the people who are just nominated. Steve Carell was nominated for Foxcatcher. Yeah. Bradley Cooper was nominated for American Sniper. Uh-huh. Benedict Cumberbatch was nominated for the Imitation Game. Uh-huh. Michael Keaton was nominated for Birdman. Do you remember the winner this year? This was one of the travesty years. Oh, I do. Is it the Theory of Everything? Eddie Redmayne for the Theory of yeah. Everything as oh, like he did gosh. he did the thing. He went disabled and got the actor. Yeah, Matt actor. McConaughey might be better than all of those performances. Except, I was gonna Michael, say, Keaton. except Michael Keaton. Except yeah, for, okay. for Michael Keaton. We're on the same page. That yeah. was the So at the time, the, the really big injustice for everyone was Michael Keaton losing. Uh, which I still sort of stand by. But yeah, I actually kind of agree. Like genuinely, yeah. I would put McConaughey over... Uh, Steve Carell is also really good in Foxcatcher. But yeah. over certainly Bradley Cooper, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Eddie red but even like uh, that's steve an Car- easy sell for me
1: even like steve carell is just kind of one of those he puts on makeup and transforms his face parts he's good in it but he's not that's as true. good as the genuine emotion in this film in the acting
0: yeah. McConaughey's not doing i would say it this way like uh especially we're talking about red and uh steve carell there like frankly kind of gimmicks to those performances that's really rude yeah. a little bit true though you think about mcconaughey in this movie no gimmicks he's just him no. It, there's nothing you know there, there's nothing like he's doing that's really eating the scenery uh, moments but he's just selling it and you're just well, there and like even when he has a
1: a line for example that could be cheesy he, he nails it so well that it still is deeply impactful like you know when he detaches from the ship at the end and what does he say he says like we agreed 90% or whatever when he doesn't yeah. tell her that he's gonna have to basically die in his mind um, for yeah. her to survive it's like That line could be cheesy, and yet he has such a strong line delivery, such a strong command of this character and his wit and his depth and his emotional woundedness, right? That, yeah, I mean, he's not working with much, you could argue, and he delivers above what I think the script gave him to do, quite frankly. Yeah. And yeah, there's no gimmick. It's just Matthew McConaughey being a boss. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Now, ordinarily, I think I may have even said when I introduced this point, uh, the acting. I'll be honest. Besides McConaughey, no one is bad in this movie. How I don't does, think anyone else is, how, is. Let me ask you a question, real quick. Amazing.
1: How does yeah. Christopher Nolan get so many famous people to be in this movie?
0: I don't know. It's weird. It's I, C- I did notice that. I'm like, I, man, we I, got we got Mr. Lithgow, we got Michael Caine, we got Topher Grace, yeah, Casey uh, Affleck. Just,
1: can Hathaway, Hathaway
0: and then, a like, young Timothy Chalamet, which yeah. I totally forgot at the moment. Of course, he wasn't Timothy Chalamet yet, well, but still. And who is who is the kid's principal? It's David Oyelowo. He just won an Oscar yeah. for playing Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> like, and what is he doing? He's just a guy. He's in <laughs> a bit part just in this a movie. Principal. <laughs> we have we both have issues with the character. I think that we'll get to. But Jessica Chastain also does a good job yeah, as he does. as Murph. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, don't know. I I think having said that there's a lot of great people in this movie. I, I don't, I, I think Matthew McConaughey is the main draw in terms of praising acting. Everyone else does a good job. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say, I do want to make a quick note. I do like that he finally cast Michael Caine sort of against type Yes. because oh, he God. always makes him basically the same character. This movie sort of tricks you. It, it seems like the same character, but then he has that, whole reversal which i think is pretty effective of of that he's been lying to everyone this whole and i love
1: the i've been lying to you the whole time shtick
0: it's great it's great it's actually kind of smart yeah i I think that 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 lands pretty well yeah uh moving on to more things of why this movie works i wrote down the sparse world building really works for me yep they never tell they never tell you exactly what has happened right Mm. And they, you know, I think a lesser movie, there would have been like interview, like news stories at the top, you know, that cliche. There would have been like, like a, a, God forbid, a voiceover or something. But they never really tell you. There's just little hints in the dialogue. Back when there were armies, uh, McConaughey says at once. Yeah. uh, Lithgow says, you know, in my day, uh, baseball players were like. Famous guys, and then McConaughey says, "Well, in my day, we were too busy fighting over food to watch baseball." So it's just little things that are that are letting you in on the world and letting you construct this picture of of a really interesting dystopia. Actually, where yeah, I you know, and they never tell you the mechanics of the blight, but again, they don't have to. It just works. I I just like that kind of world building. It's very, very good to me. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think I wrote down the movie's dystopian vision of the future and, and yep. then essentially agree where it, it's it's the way it's fed to you that makes it so good. get it fed. Um, you know, hey, but I think what it what it really does effectively is I actually think better than most movies, at least with our more modern understanding of what's happening to our world, it captures what a collapse would probably look like. you know it's not political, it's not warfare necessarily. It's ecological, it's environmental, it's agricultural, right? And I yeah. think the blight is a really powerful thought exercise and tool for depicting that. I mean, I think this movie gets it. The end of the world comes from an ecological collapse that starts slowly and then gets real fast, right? Yeah. Where they've pulled out enough pieces of the complex webs of how life works on our planet, and then it just all falls apart eventually. And, and you see that. Yeah. In like, again, like you were saying, the small ways that they talk about the blight basically transforms and spreads and eventually is unstoppable you know Uh, well one second john this is for you i wondered yep. what the breakfast your corn or your spirit okay i'm done but like, <laughs> oh my god but yeah throw away my god he's always good he's all, bane's always there baby Fade's <laughs> always there watching but Anyways. like throw away yes. lights, like the last okra harvest ever i was gonna say that's yeah. one of my
0: favorite lines in the movie because it's even, so it hits you you're like oh wow this yeah, is for real
1: yeah. Absolutely but even like small bits How there's like these wandering drones right? Science becoming propaganda Because they have to get people to be farmers You know trying to essentially Discourage discovery because they need Practical sciences like these are all hinted at Like you were saying mm-hmm. But they do a really good job Of conveying the dying world That is taking place and it feels incredibly Real and lived in Though I will and say just consider... The masking Sorry, what... up triggered me I did not need that. Like when everyone's putting on masks and stuff, like in, in the year 2021, you didn't, need
0: didn't need it. I didn't even think about that. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think one more thing with the world building too. notice that on earth, the scope of the movie is actually extremely limited, yeah. which I think is to its benefit. Yep. We don't flash away to Washington where we're seeing, you know, this or that we're not flashing away to other characters to the mayor to the teacher we really see a little bit of the school a baseball field a little bit of the town and a lot of the house that they live on and that's Mm -hmm. it and they convey everything we just said about the world just in those places that's really good that's smart writing i just i just think it's very very effective well yeah and it it captures it captures the
1: survival right where it's like if there is a world in which growing corn is survival of course everyone gets siloed because all the reasons we had for interconnection in good and bad violence or you know creative building progress collaboration they're gone it's like you're you just need to be trained to grow corn. And the only collaboration is going to come when the government comes to take the corn to feed people. And and see, it really is, it, it zooms in in a way that is good storytelling, but it's also really good at conveying just the harsh survivalist nature of what pre- this predicament has turned everyone into. So yeah, it's just yeah. good, man. It's just good.
0: I have several more things of why this works. Uh, I'm going to say one big one and then pass it to you. Okay. Uh, you may. I, I assume you'll have things on this one this is my last really major thing the it became a meme unfortunately the spin scene is so so good it is and for a couple reasons so first of all it's working so well from a visual standpoint it just like we said earlier it just looks good from a sound standpoint, that's when the music really hits, like that organ piece. Yeah. Which is just, oh my gosh. And then, but finally, I think this is the thing I, I maybe missed even the first time the thematic resonance yeah. that they are playing out what this movie is about, of basically pushing, as you get pushed into your final, most desperate state of survival, the impulse to still fight back is and and it it shows you that it doesn't tell you that it shows you the hopeless situation and then Cooper resolving I'm going to go in anyways. I'm not just going to say, well that's it. We're done. I'm going to still do the insane thing because I have to because it's my only option to survive. And it's and again that's thematic resonance. So it yeah. it's a great scene for all of the visual and sonic um reasons. But it also is a great scene because it's a microcosm of why the movie, what the movie's talking about, uh, and it just lands for me every time I watch it. I'm just, I'm on the edge of my seat. I was in the theater when I first saw it. It's just, it's so good. Uh, so that was the biggest last thing I had. And if, if you have any thoughts on that,
1: well, I mean, I think you covered why it works so well. I'll always sure. have in my mind the moment where like it stops spinning counter to each other and they line up because they're spinning at the same speed. It's just like a really cool effect. Yeah um i will disagree with you that the line where he says cooper it's not possible that he says it no it's necessary that's not that's not a good line it's just you
0: say that in the movie i always let it pass when i think about it later i'm like ooh. but in the movie i'm there so you know i'm i can be overly sentimental that's yeah no it's a great scene it's unbelievable yeah
1: well, hit, we're hit, gonna no.
0: get to Doctor Man later, but <laughs> I will. I will say though, it was so satisfying watching him start into a self-glorified speech. Yeah, that thing gets cut off when the thing ruptures. It is. It's fantastic. That's very. That's like. That's such good shout and frown. because so, you know he's gonna. He's been giving these dumb speeches the whole oh movie. My God. And then one gets totally interrupted. It's really funny, actually. Like, it's So,
1: di- uh, Matt Damon dying. That's what worked for this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. But we'll get to that Again, later. Again, we will probably get to that later. I have a um, few more good points, but, yeah. Mike, uh, I, I've been talking for a while. What do you got?
1: Um, I have a, two quick ones. I think the early father-daughter relationship is really good. It kills me. I mean, like, yeah. a- as a new father of a daughter, it absolutely kills me. But, like, when she's running after him... In the car Oof. and then he looks under Oof. the passenger seat hoping she snuck in and she hasn't like yeah. oh my gosh oh it's, man it's it's a hitting it's just a really well done scene um i'm not Can sure i interrupt
0: real quick yeah uh that that scene too exemplifies just one of my points the pacing in the first part of the movie is really good because yes. that is the very end of the earth scenes which is about 40 minutes which is a little long but that's a great amount of time to get to know the characters, to get emotionally invested before we get to the spectacle stuff. Yeah. Uh, that just really hits. But yeah. I'm sorry. Keep going. Um, I'm not sure
1: I love the idea of a dad having to abandon their kids to provide them with a the future because I think we already have enough of that narrative in America sure. for less yeah. pro- big problems. But what can you do? It's necessary for the film. Um, but, yeah. No, I think that early development, like you said, it's compact. And it proves that when he wants to, he can keep that kind of exposition tight and still pack an emotional wallop. So he'll get you invested um, in a really perfect way. So that's a perfect build, yeah. I think, to that segment, like you were saying. I don't know. I was going to actually, my last point, I was going to toss to you as a question, which is how do you feel about the interview elements? Because I think I like them, but they don't always feel like they work. And sometimes I really was like, this is a gimmick. But I think they work. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on that.
0: I actually had them in my stray thoughts. And uh, I think this will tell you exactly what I think of them. Does the old people being interviewed for the future of Grand Events Chick ever not work? I'm totally on board. I'm 100% there. Were you you into video games around Halo 3? Yeah, of course. Do you remember the advertisements for that game where they had... Like, so there was some, there's a really amazing ad campaign. Welcome to the Halo 3 podcast. There was a really amazing ad campaign where they had basically like old, old veterans, is what they were portrayed as, uh, talking about the battle that takes place in the game. Mm. Uh, and I was totally on board. I, yeah, I, I wrote down, I'm not sure. Maybe I just have too small a sample size because I can only think of this movie and that, but I'm completely sold every time. I, I love that. Okay. I think more movies should do it. Okay, I'm game. Uh, I, I don't I didn't think it didn't work. I was just trying to sure, decide for you just myself wanted to know. how I felt. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, I also have a few small things I'll get through. Not quite stray thoughts, but just you know, small things of why this works. We didn't explicitly make a point about it, so I'll just say the music is exceptional. Um yeah. Hans Zimmer actually does have low points. He does have movies where he kind of phones it in. Uh, this is not one of them. This is great. The the organ I think is such a good idea. If only because it's unexpected, you don't yeah. think about that in the context of space, but it really, really works in my opinion. Very operatic, um, very good. Very, yeah, very exactly. Uh, I found again, this is a small thing. A future space robot that's not evil is genuinely refreshing. Oh, that's nice. and in general, and in general, I think that the movie's perspective on technology is, like I said, refreshing. Like yep. it's a future space semi dystopian movie. Technology is not the bad guy though. Yeah. And that's unusual and I really like it. It reminded me uh, of um it yeah.
1: reminded me a lot of her where it's yeah. It's yeah. N- the robots like when they become aware and her aren't villains. Like there's nothing villainous about technology, right? Um yeah. now that one has all sorts of other cool things going on, but I like that in this moment when in which we don't have AI so it's not at the point where they're thinking for themselves. They still are a good thing. so sorry, I'm just repeating what you said. but yeah, no, it's, it is I, incredibly yeah, I, refreshing.
0: I think the her connection is great too. My last point for why this movie works, I saved because it's it's gonna it might be controversial. I don't know. this could be like the old people thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna gauge where you are on this. I wrote, to be honest, I found the ending much more tolerable once I already knew it was coming. I'm talking about when he gets into the black hole. Uh It's still a little out of nowhere, but I actually think they earn it more than I originally gave the movie credit for. I'm willing for you to tell me that you deeply disagree. This is a sticking point for a lot of people with the movie. But once again, once I knew it was coming I felt like the movie did gesture that direction. Like they were setting up the whole, the ghost thing where it's like, they got taken to the NASA headquarters originally by a completely unexplainable phenomenon. The whole, uh, as we're going to talk about it later, the whole love speech, the whole, I I do think they actually set it up and I I, I don't even think it's executed that badly. Again, I think it's, I, so, so I guess what I'm saying is, I think the reason why I and many others responded negatively was again that expectations game that basically we thought we were walking into hard sci-fi and the movie presents itself as hard sci-fi until that moment once i knew it wasn't hard sci-fi i actually think that's fine and i think it even works i was actually on board i'm prepared for you to tell me you completely disagree so what do you got yeah this is a good kind of transition to what doesn't work but we'll
1: we'll make sure we pause before we dive into that John. I know you love your breaks but Love me my breaks. Yeah I mean I had this uh, straddling the two
0: Okay. I can Really the two
1: categories and yeah there's two points I would make. The first is I'm not sure that love as a scientific force working across time and space is a good plot point for me. I think it's telling that As someone who is deeply moved by people like Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan friar um, in Christian theology, especially with this idea of love as like this foundation of existence and reality and what that means, right? I think that this should impact me and it should be like right on. That should be my response. And it's telling that it's not. It's telling that I'm just kind of like, okay, cool, right? It it just... Mm -hmm for whatever reason the idea that love is the one thing that transcends time and space or whatever other than gravity does not work for me and i wish Mm -hmm. it did i really really wish it did beyond that i think that final scene is everything problematic about him riddling scenes with too much exposition and explaining if you agree with that matthew mcconaughey literally talks for 90 percent of that scene walking through 5d in a 3d space and blah, 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 He just talks a lot. Right. And it, the movie Mm -hmm. slows down and which is a shame. I think, I don't think it works when it slows down. And (sighs) the last point I would make is I do think there is a difference when you think about how people structure a movie. Where it's attempting to be deep, layered, intelligent, and then really rewatchable in how it lays out its intricate plot points in a way that are like Easter eggs. That on the rewatch, you're like, oh, it was building to this. I should have seen it coming, right? Mm -hmm. There is a difference between a movie that by its nature and creativity has a sense of that depth that you want to return to in mind and one that is clearly doing it like a gimmick, right? In which he wants you to go back through it and be like, oh, my gosh, Murph on the bed said we'll be the same age. Or when he says, when I'm by a black hole in times, moves differently for us. It's like he's trying to build those things into his his movies. Exactly. Yeah. It's not subtle. It's almost like he's trying to manipulate me into rewatching his movie so I can be like, whoa. Right. It's almost painfully (laughs) obvious to the point that it feels unnatural to me. My rant yeah. is over. You may respond.
0: <laughs> I don't. And, and so the funny thing is, I like the scene. You have significant issues with it. I don't disagree with any of your points. Yeah. And and I think that my experience, it sort of encapsulates my experience on this most recent rewatch. I would say I, the reason I walked away from this movie so much happier the second time is because I since I already knew... The plot I sort of was able to look past the presentation at the actual essence of the story and, and sure. the plot and themes. And so and you actually make a great example because you're right. He expositories the hell out of this whole scene and it's real bad. Yeah. Uh, but a great example of this, McConaughey's whole revelation, it's us. We were doing this for a It's that is dumb. Great. Well, and it's dumb when he just says it. Yeah. But the idea is it's really so good. good. Yes. So in a sense, I agree that's frustrating is maybe the best word. Yeah. But if when I focus on that, on like the idea of oh, the I, sorry, the ideas of what's going on, I find I, I really love the movie. But I don't disagree with what the point that you're making, that the presentation of those ideas leaves a lot to be desired. And and I don't want to get too high and mighty, but as people who do invest a lot in like language of spirituality, I did get the sense, like like you were saying with that last thing, where I'm like, you don't strike me as someone who's actually talked to or read, talked to many people or read that much about this. Because yeah. I think his language would have been different if he had. He would have found the slightly more igniting interesting ways of wording these concepts rather than he kind of just puts everything on its face, uh, yeah. which is now getting us into why this doesn't work, but you had well, more points on this. Well, no, and and yeah.
1: then we'll move in one more and then we'll move into why yeah. this doesn't work. I think what we talked about ET in our third episode and the thing that is so effective about Spielberg is that he knows exactly what he wants me to feel. And then he makes me feel it it is at times manipulative. It is at times heavy handed. It is at times simplistic, but guaranteed I'm going to feel what Spielberg wants me to feel. It is telling, maybe even damning when someone is trying to make me feel a very specific thing. And then I Mm -hmm. don't right. Yeah. Where he's trying to manipulate me into feeling some emotion about some scene. And this happens with the daughter. We'll get into that in a second and i just don't feel it it just doesn't do anything right and i just think that's a miss more than anything but you're right the idea beneath it is fantastic my essay is literally on what the thing you just talked about was is the idea the revelation that they save themselves is a really important good profound idea and yet the delivery is like i want you to feel this about this revelation and i just don't I just don't, and that's a problem. Yeah. If you're going to be this heavy-handed and this openly manipulative, oh, I love I you, totally Christopher Nolan. I'm so <laughs> sorry.
0: Hey, Chris, we love you, buddy. If you're listening, shout outs to Christopher Nolan listening right now. You done good, kid. Bathing. <laughs> What's the? I know I bring this up a lot, but the uh, the gif of Woody Harrelson wiping his tears away with money. Yeah, exactly. That's how exactly. I picture. <laughs> that's how I picture Christopher Nolan taking our criticism. Stick around. We're going to get to why this doesn't work right after the break. Okay, guys so we're gonna as we have constantly alluded to uh, we finally are going to talk about maybe why this movie doesn't work what holds this movie back Uh, I'm going to start with I'm going to reverse our trend I'm going to start with a very small one very small one but you did reference this and so I felt the need to get this off my chest the sound mixing is horrible (laughs) horrible and just so you guys know this is not, I don't know if you know this, Mike, this is not just me. I found an article talking about other directors specifically reaching out to Nolan to say what is going on with the dialogue mixing in your movies. The It's gotten worse over time. You can measure it. Yeah. The dialogue yeah. is inaudible compared to the sound effects of music, and it's a problem. I had to watch this movie with a remote control next to me because I couldn't, hear them when they're just talking but then when it goes so I would turn it up and then they go to the space scenes and it's so loud it's blowing out my speakers Nolan for his I don't think for his credit but for his part knows this like he has said he's like oh I just kind of like that I think it oh, makes the more intense Yeah it's a choice but it's it's so bad it's so aggravating it's so annoying this is why when he brought up sound I was very hesitant Yeah I agree the sound design is good, but the mixing is atrocious and it's so annoying and aggravating. Yeah. I had to bring it up first. It's not my biggest point by a mile, but it's possibly the one I'm most passionate about. It's yep. so annoys me. Yeah. It's,
1: it's so strange because I haven't seen Tenet, but I've heard it, it's Tenet's the most exaggerated example of this. Yeah, people said very this.
0: similar things about it. Yeah.
1: And it's obvious that he's choosing to do this and I don't get why. Yeah.
0: I don't get why. I don't get it. I don't get it. It doesn't serve his movies. Maybe he he knows his dialogue has issues and he wants to, (laughs) he doesn't want people, he's just hoping they don't notice. Uh, So yeah, with that though, that's not a terrible segue. Why this doesn't work, a lot of the dialogue is very overwrought. It's cheesy. And I think we might as well just go ahead and talk about it. The love speech the the now infamous love speech yeah. delivered by Anne Hathaway who's an extremely talented actor um I don't know here's what I wrote and I think you might agree I wish it landed better yeah I wrote that I actually the entire love yeah.
1: plot line I was like I
0: wish yeah. this landed better. yeah <laughs> yeah I don't I don't hate the idea and I don't hate the the themes and and all of that it just doesn't land right and i wrote it's could be poor timing it could be context but i think it's just the writing yep that when when she's giving that speech and i remember in the theater what she's when she drops the word love i just think a better writer would have i don't know like played around that slightly made you kind of have to do some work but when she spells out that concept it sounded it sounded stupid in 2014 it still sounds stupid now. You yeah. just can't get over
1: it. Yeah, and I don't I don't get it. I mean, we're talking about the scene where the the powerful scene where McConaughey is watching the videos and we're yeah. we're applauding the fact that he elevates that scene. But I think the troubling part of this movie is there are so many other scenes that don't land because they are basically act, asking the actors to elevate bad material or not bad, potentially cheesy or not effective material. Through just, like, A-plus acting. Essentially, yeah. every other scene is asking an actor to take material beyond what it is on its own. And that works sometimes, but you're going to end up with a lot of misses, too, right? And I think that's yeah. a perfect one. I mean, one of my favorite lines in the movie is also one of the cheesiest. Like, it's when he's talking to his the grandpa, right? And he's like, it's like we've forgotten who we are, explorers, pioneers, not tear cakers. And then he says, we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry at our place in the dirt. I think that's a yeah. great line, but it's also one of those things where, like, this line is so on the nose that it almost undermines how you so coolly and subtly built the dread of this dying world, right? Yeah. Um, and then you're it's also funny. just like, I here's down- the theme of
0: the movie. Like, yeah. I mean... <laughs> It's funny you say that. I wrote down the exact same thing about a line from that same scene a little bit later when he says, we're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. I, I think it's the same thing you were just saying where it's like, that's a really good line. It is probably overwrought. And especially in context of him having already kind of said that several times. It's like, I don't know. I I think the writing just struggles is I guess what we're both saying. And he's so, he
1: he does this in a lot of his
0: movies. He has this bizarre
1: conflict. Christopher Nolan, I mean, has this bizarre conflict between having really neat, profound ideas that are naturally built into the movie and then just wanting to tell us directly what we're supposed to think, what his ideas are, and what his movie's about. I mean, there are countless examples that in this movie. We're going to talk about Dr. Man, but naming a character Dr. Man oh my god right naming the daughter after murphy's law i get it christopher nolan yeah the line where they're like the drone needs to learn to adapt like the rest of us like oh my lord like stop yep. hitting me in the yep. head with your thematic stick i don't need yep. it i'm not an idiot and it's undermining the effectiveness of your movie <laughs> like you know what yep. i mean <laughs> sorry
0: i got worked <sighs> up there i just no, got worked uh... up. You know, honestly, let's ride this train. Can we, Can we, let's do the Dr. Man thing. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's do uh, it. I don't know. I, I got the chance to ride earlier. So if you'd like, you can take, you can take this one. Oh, I man. I have thoughts. I have thoughts, but I'll let you go first. Okay. Yeah. The Dr. Man
1: plot line, I, I legitimately think with a different name and mm-hmm. much shorter is not a bad idea for this movie. The idea Completely of someone agreed. not wanting to die, even though there seemed to be a hero, but when it comes time for it, they have like this idea of their destiny and it keeps them from actually sacrificing. I think that's a cool idea, but it is yeah. so unbelievably overly <laughs> long and its execution yeah. is so poor and it feels so unnecessary. Matt Damon does not fit in this movie. He may play schwarm yep. like shwarmy dude. Well, but ultimately, you feel like he has a ton of lines that don't convey what they're supposed to, and you're just like, "Why are yeah. you talking so much in this movie?" <laughs> like the scene where he's talking to Matthew McConaughey
0: has Matthew McConaughey's it's dying. It's so long. Like, this is it so goes on long. so. And I I remember I forgot that somehow, and I was rewatching it. Like, does this really happen? Is this an extended edition? I didn't know I got by accident. Dude, no, that's it, in the movie, and it's he the just same does that. Problem is everything his other
1: like just these other ways that he just is overindulgent because there is a, there are a couple great lines. Like when Matthew McConaughey or when Matt Damon says, I never really considered the possibility that my planet wasn't the one great. That's line. a great line. Awesome yeah. line. But like, does Matt Damon have some contract clause where he has to have half the script like to be in this yeah. movie? Cause he literally just keeps talking in the yeah. okay, last point. And I'm gonna let you let you rant for a second, but <laughs> sure. the world is also the least interesting set piece to look at, and you spend the most time in it.
0: Yeah, what of are all we the doing? we see. Yeah, I totally What are we yeah. doing? Oh, it's so weird. It's it's. I think it's, like yeah yeah. It's a misstep. Uh, I wrote. You know, it's funny. The first point I have is very a very small but important criticism, for reasons completely beyond me. I don't know if you remember this for reasons completely beyond me. They also hid the fact that Matt Damon was in the movie. That's a bad, dumb decision because when he comes up, <laughs> so do you remember that everyone no, was I like, remember that? What the hell is that? Matt Damon? It It was that. It just, I just distinctly remember it taking you so out of the movie. And I, I, I feel like I even remember people around me just being like, what? But not in a good way. It's just, it's a bizarre decision to hide him from the promotional material. That's not a character that should be a surprise in that way. Um, That's a small point, but a big one, but yeah. Okay. So Dr. Man, what I wrote is basically just, it's such an overblown metaphor. They literally first refer to him, sorry, refer to him as Dr. Man is the best of us. And they say that line like three times for some reason. And it's, it's just like I get it, and it's like people don't talk like that, yeah. and I don't know. I, I in a way, I guess I'm just going to repeat what you said. So we'll leave it. We'll leave it there unless you have more points. But yeah, I think it's it's just such an overblown metaphor, and it contributes to the length problem of the movie. Which Next actually, point. let's hit that real quick. Yep. This movie is just too long. Yep. Uh, well, I told I told Mike kind of during the break. I found it hard to believe when the, sp- the spin scene is so good. and is such a good climactic scene. It's very, it- it's indicative of what we're talking about that after that, there's still like 35 minutes left in the movie, which is a long time. This is a nearly three hour movie and it feels like it. It is not, it, it yeah, it's just too long. They just need to cut out a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, this movie A lot is- of things from this scene. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh no, uh, this movie is just the quintessential- example of when we say why this movie didn't work and really what held this movie back because it it really is an I I don't want to tell Christopher Nolan how to do his job. But I have oh, to imagine like to. I have to imagine it probably would have been pretty easy for an editor to fix a lot of the problems of this movie with length Sure. There are just entire chunks that drag, that are too long, that just need to be slimmed. And this movie works that don't so add any effect yeah exactly yeah yep yeah. yep
0: yeah. yeah. it's just it's just too long. having said <laughs> that, I do want to make a, a brief important note that I was surp- I, I said this earlier, so I guess I'm just reiterating it. I was surprised. I don't think the length becomes a problem until the second half of the movie. yep so I actually think like the the long setup at the beginning on earth, I actually think that works. Yeah. Like the 45 yeah. minutes we spend on earth. I think that sets up the back half really well. It's well, really like in that half where things get rough and you're yeah. like, please end this movie.
1: Well, and it's a trend with him at this point that I think, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I think he just struggles with final acts as a director, right? I think the final sure. act of the dark Knight is the worst part. The boat scene with the Joker, you know, I think the final act of um, inception is the worst part when he goes to the lowest level of the dream and it, it drags out how long he's seeking his wife and the buildings are all falling down or whatever. I, I just mm-hmm. think there's this, I, and I don't know why. I don't know why so many of his films have an anti-climax, right? Um, Dunkirk might be the exception to that. Yeah, well, I think are, that
0: the end of Dunkirk is is probably the best part of the movie. Well, and Prestige uh, too. I think Prestige is a great sure. final act,
1: right? Yeah. Um, but he does seem to have
0: these problems where he doesn't know how to really land his movies. like in, in, Sure. I don't know. I don't know if you Which agree. Gets back to the, I, 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 I do agree. And I think it gets back to the control thing we were saying earlier, right? Where like in the hands of a very skill of the Cameron's of the Spielberg's you, you, you trust that, or, or they know how to land, how to make that ending really sing. Because unfortunately we tend to remember the beginning and end of things most. Yeah. And so it really matters if you don't stick the landing, obviously it's not hurting him too badly, uh, looking once again as box office receipts, but I agree with you. I think that it, it shows, I mean, check that... tenant, get back to me. Hey, yeah, burn hey. sick. Chris, the Nolan pandemic burned. probably had a few things to do with that, but yeah. Well... And his strange insistence on, on releasing, releasing it. it in yeah. Theaters. <laughs> yeah. It was weird. Uh, but you know, if I was that, if I, I, I would throw my weight around a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, all of my rest of my, why this doesn't work are kind of small points. Do you have any other big things? Um. Yeah, I don't
1: understand what I'm supposed to do with or feel about the daughter when she becomes an adult character. I think this movie wants me to care about her a lot. In fact, I think the emotional weight of the movie relies on it. Um, And I think she, as an actor, Jessica Chastain, does a great job. But I think the way they write this character really undermines the attachment I need to have or I'm supposed to have. To make some of the the final scenes of this film work, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just don't know. What? I just don't know what to do with that character, even on the rewatch. I'm just like, am I, do I am I supposed to like her? Am I supposed to feel bad for her? I don't really feel any of those things for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. in fact, I think Casey Affleck's scene in the camera or the videos obviously lands so much harder than hers does. Yeah. And it feels so much more human and it feels so much more naturally written. And then her section doesn't. And it's just like, you've almost undermined the weight of the emotional impact of this scene. And yeah, so I, I just don't know what to do with that character. And I think it doesn't work. It's
0: very uh well. it's ironic when we were just saying that the movie is way too long. I felt like we needed more time with her as an yeah. adult. I felt like we needed, or just more. I just think she didn't have very much to do. Like you, yeah. you really are introduced to her as full a fully formed character and you basically get to see her make one transition where she realizes it was her father talking to her uh somehow which i don't know but when she realizes that that's sort of her big turning point as a character yeah and that's kind of it if you yeah. really think about it that is the only progression that character gets in the whole movie and like you said it feels like that's supposed to be our entire emotional weight. Yeah. And so it just falls really, it just falls flat. And and I don't know. Well, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Well, we're getting into dangerous territory, not dangerous, but I think real territory of criticism, which is, I don't think Nolan's movies have very good female characters. Um, Yeah. Another trend that I think is disturbing about him is just like, they're usually only there to fulfill the desires or to set the motivations of his lead male characters. And I think the Batman is-
0: films might be the most egregious example of totally this. Totally true. Uh, yep. If yep. you think yep. about it, that, they, they have one main female character that they don't know what to do with. They recast first, the second movie, they kill off in the second movie. Yep. And then they have introduced one in the third movie who is a pretty poor character. We won't litigate that, but yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's, it's noticeable. Yep. It's, it's not good. Yeah. Uh, Okay, I have a couple small ones real quick. Not quite stray thoughts, still criticisms, but uh, the mechanics, it's funny. So we talked about the water planet. The mechanics of everything going wrong don't land for me. I'm not totally clear why the dude died. It feels so much like the like a chintzy B movie. I mean the dude who's with them, right? The, yeah. the, the other member of the Endurance. It feels like a chintzy B movie or like the scene in Prometheus where they're running away from the circle thing. Because I'm just screaming at the screen. Why aren't they running back to get in the ship? Yeah. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, they. it's such a stupid reason for them to get stuck and die because you there can see the danger and are like, I don't know why. I just don't understand the characters and what's motivating them. So I, I do agree with your point earlier. It's a good scene for a lot of reasons. Stuff like that doesn't land for me. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean,
1: how did they not immediately figure out like the water world was jacked because like when they turn around and see the giant wave it's like on them and you're like did you just yeah. not look the other direction at any point it's
0: like is this a supersonic wave because like, how did it it's... how did the wave sneak up on them?
1: exactly and then like how does doyle not get in the ship but she does he's like already there it's so it may, yeah he's literally <laughs> holding the <laughs> door so and so it's many like weird... how did he not get in and then I also love that it's like, did, did Matthew McConaughey really need to tell Anne Hathaway, tell that to Doyle? That just seems yeah. wildly unnecessary. Um, yeah, it's insane. It's, um, a we- it's a weird flaw in that scene. I mean, I could not get past, again, I caught this in theaters. This is one of those plot yeah. holes where they turn around and the waves on them. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. That thing I, I, yeah. is 80 stories tall. I was like,
0: huh? <laughs> huh? Uh Honestly, there's a couple scenes where mechanics, uh, which I, by that I mean like, you know, trying to visualize exactly what's happening and why it's happening doesn't always land. I still, and, and maybe you can help me here. I still do not know why, like the scene where Romilly, their other character, the guy who ages a lot, right? While they're mm-hmm. down on the water planet. where Can you explain to me how he dies? He gets blown up by the other robot. Uh, I just do not understand. Like, obviously it was rigged, but I don't understand why exactly. And I don't understand how they triggered it. And I don't. Yeah. So
1: the whole thing I think is that Dr. Man didn't want them to find out that the planet wasn't inhabitable. So he rigged his thing. That's why he's
0: so cagey about them not. Well, I not think it's so into
1: that robot. He rigged the robot that if they get past that and find the data it explodes. So he hacks it essentially and oh. then it blows up. I think is the point. Again, Dr. plotline, not great. So It was a, I, I
0: guess I can concede that. I I don't think that was adequately. Maybe I'm dumb. I don't think that no, was adequately. No. D- I don't the think
1: movie. I don't think that entire scene is adequately explained
0: <laughs> in an effective and way. And it's so. and it's probably hurt by the constant that's when it's cutting away to him giving the, the longest speech in human history to yeah. dying Matthew McConaughey. It's just uh, like,
1: good gravy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It's not quite the coincidences Pixar rule being broken. <clears throat> that, that rule, I, I reference it. Sorry, I'm, I'm moving to another point, but uh, I, I referenced this in an episode a long time ago, but Pixar has a rule where coincidences that get characters into trouble are fine. Coincidences that get them out of trouble are bad. But when Cooper shows up at NASA, uh, and yeah. they so quickly give him command of the ship, that's insane. <laughs> they're just like, once, you're again, in. once again, once <laughs> again, I'm with you. I, I I despise when people just nitpick and point out things that aren't really plotholes. But I noticed that in the movie, I was like, wait, what? He just shows up, and they're like, oh, it's you from a long time ago. Hey, do you want to fly this ship? Yeah, and it's like, what? Yeah, yeah. How does it? What? So, yeah.
1: There, yeah. The movie's plot in general does not make much sense if you spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think that's a yeah. and it perfect shows at example. points
0: in the movie. Yep, yep.
1: it has the normal plot I got. problems with time yep. travel. It has the normal
0: coincidental jumps that a lot of Nolan movies have. I think that's a perfect. Having example. said that, I'm gonna I'm gonna briefly dip my toes back into why this works. It's a really cool idea that <coughs> if he's the ghost he interacts with her at different points that don't line up with his own timeline. So when he first sees her, he says, stay, which is the last thing she hears from the ghost. Yeah. But then he realizes what's happening and and starts talking to her, which are some of the first things she sees. That's really clever. And I really like that. So, but yes, there are significant plot holes.
1: Here's a question on the plot hole front that maybe you can solve for me. So the gravity bursts or whatever are coming from him. Right. Yeah. So is the implication that he crashes his own ship whenever he
0: has the injury that ends his career? I, they don't show thought that. that, but I didn't, in a way, I don't think they answer that, but it is a, I, I think that's actually what more of the movie should have been like that. In other yeah. words, that's an open ended question. I don't think yeah. it gives us a satisfactory answer, but I actually think that's to its benefit and more of the last scene should have been like that. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I don't know. I I, I personally like that theory. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Cause when when he describes the crash, he says it was a gravitational anomaly um coming in that and that they find out it's coming from this wormhole that opens up. Yeah, because uh, then
1: there's like a cool thing where it's like when he first is falling into that room, does he accidentally hit a wall and it crosses? you know, this devastating impact on his life. Right. I think you're right. I think it It, is. It opens up a lot
0: of interesting ways of thinking about it. So yeah, I I don't don't think there's, there is an answer, but that's one,
1: one final question that I don't have a set answer to about why maybe it held it back. And that is, and you did this to me the other day where you asked the question about changing an ending to make it more effective. Do you think this movie would have been better if his daughter didn't survive to the point where she got to see him? Like, is this a better movie if he saves his daughter in the world, but comes back too late?
0: Uh, it's funny. I'm going to give you, cause I asked you that about the Truman show. Yeah. Um, basically saying, basically making the point it would have more emotional weight if he either chose to stay or if we didn't know. Uh, and in a way I'm going to mirror your own response to me, which is yes. I think it, the answer is yes. I think it would have more emotional weight if she dies or perhaps even better if we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I ultimately, I think, I, I just think that would have been too intense for this kind of movie. Right. Yeah. Like, like I, I just think that it, that would have made, that would have been a decidedly <laughs> darker perspective. And I think that the movie benefits by ultimately being optimistic. So I, I, I tend to be okay with, with that. Um, I think me too. But I, I don't know. It would have worked though. It would have just made it higher emotional stakes, basically. I think you're right. All right, so let's get to this last section uh, before we get to our essays later. We have stray thoughts. Uh, we usually just go back and forth. Uh, I'll go ahead and start. Is this one of the most egregious examples of parental favoritism? <laughs> he does not. He does not give a crap about Tom. Do you uh, notice that? Yeah. When he's leaving, and to he be gives fair, a hug, Tom is. Yeah, the he gives him like a hug. <laughs> to be fair, Tom's not giving him a lot to work with. I, I did note Tom's dad is leaving for years, possibly forever. And his last question is Do I get your truck? What, yeah, what are we doing, sucks. Tom? <laughs> uh, but all the same, it is very noticeable to me that he really, really cares about Murph. Tom doesn't really get that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. We don't really care that much about top. Anyways. Yeah.
1: Relatedly, do we need to make more movies about how absent fathers and uh, neglect their kids and then their kids use that neglect to save
0: the world? Uh, The answer is yes. Obviously. Okay. Just I think, think that sure. it, it always lands, <laughs> always lands, Mike.
1: Okay. This is a big one for me. Um, yeah. and this is not my idea. I got this from other people who talk about films. Uh, but man, Christopher Nolan has a real obsession with dead wives, and it's weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it comes up a lot. Yep, a lot of his characters, uh, essentially their entire motivation and the reason the plot moves at all is that their wives or girlfriend die. And that's uh, strange. I mean, just I'm going to let the audience go back and think through Christopher Nolan's movies and identify how many of them have a dead wife at the center.
0: to. It's going to get it.
1: funky real quick.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't quite defend it. It is just a nor it's also just a trope. But like, you know, like people like point that out about Disney movies. Like, well, 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 think about every nineties Disney movie has an orphan character or a character sure. with only one parent. So I mean it there's a I don't know, there's a reason for it. I do agree though, he he leans on the trope a lot. Um my next stray thought this is a small one. My biggest pet peeve with any sci-fi movie is sound in space. I can't <laughs> say how happy I am yeah. that this movie actually portrays that correctly. And I also wrote, I don't know why any movie doesn't do this right. I think it makes space scenes more dramatic, yeah. having them silent. Like I said earlier, uh, the
1: contrast is the best part.
0: Yeah, yeah. Space should be silent, guys. There's Sound is vibrating air. There's no air to vibrate. So Idiots. I, I, I get so mad whenever ever, any movie does that. And this is the perfect example of why not only can you do it, without sound in space but i think it makes it better so i don't know that's my straight thought what
1: you got um everyone is starving to death and these jerks drive their truck straight through a cornfield to capture a malfunctioning drone
0: <laughs> also i don't want to be i don't want to be too uh i don't know what the word would be uh vulgar about this or too too you know possibly gruesome no one looks like they're starving to death am i crazy <laughs> like they, they look fine <laughs> Matt, Damon. like they look. <laughs> Matt Damon looks look, good too. Matt Damon looks great, and he's been in it's cryo sleep for years. Everyone looks okay, and I'm like, that's weird. Anyways, yeah. Why uh, have they let yeah. the old live this long? Why haven't they eaten John Lithgow yet? That's my point. Oh jeez. Uh, this is another small one. The ticking sound in the background of the Water Planet is a great Nolan touch. It was. Good. Uh, someone did the someone did the math that like I think every tick is like like half a year or something like that. Yeah, like they all correspond great. to real world time in a really clever way. That's great. Uh Yeah. That's cool. Um, I'm going to read you a line and I'm going to yeah. ask
1: you a question. Mankind was born on earth, but he was never meant to die here. Does Matthew McConaughey become Jared Leto in Blade Runner
0: 2049? <laughs> uh, man it's hard to argue with that is that is that is right there that is virtually his exact words something to think about you know yeah, something to there think you about go. I asked the hard questions asking the hard questions here um I, I'm gonna read right I'm gonna read the exact sentence I wrote and then make two comments on it is Murphy and the nurse that looks like Topher Grace the most phoned in love subplot ever <laughs> Yes. There's two important notes to make here. The first is the reason why I wrote this as I was watching the movie. The reason why that nurse looks like Topher Grace is because it is Topher Grace. Yeah. I went the whole movie just thinking it was a guy who looked like him. And I was like, oh, that's it. <laughs> My second point is this is not a criticism. I, I actually think more movies make the mistake of like trying to flesh that out. Yeah. You it need doesn't to. need to be fleshed out. Yeah. But... I, did, I do remember that I'm always surprised when she kisses him. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't. Okay, uh, yeah. It's just very kind of out of nowhere. Uh, it sure is. What you got? Um, there's a shot where
1: Jessica Chastain goes back to their old house uh, where her brother lives, and the front door is just a screen door, and they don't open another door to let her in. So, one, obviously this is the reason that Casey Affleck's entire family is dying Is because dying uh, they, they don't have a relation. real door. The question is is Casey Affleck a climate science truther in this movie?
0: I actually to expand that question a little bit like if you think about the NASA deniers at the beginning, a little bit more prescient than I wanted it to be. Yeah, right. Like, like this movie in general, there was things that I was like, oh, this is a little tough in 2021. He was taught to be this. this way. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh they recite do not go gentle into that good night one too many times <laughs> like eight times. It was many great. Times? It was great the first time. <laughs> it was kind of serviceable the second time. By the I think it's 3 total. It might be 4 yeah, total. I but it's, it's at three least four. 3. Oh my god. Uh, anything past the second one I was I was like, "Wow, really?" But okay. The third time I'm like, "I cannot believe they're doing this."
1: It is I so obviously
0: a f- most effective if it's set at the beginning and it's cited
1: sometime near the climax in an effective way no we gotta keep we gotta
0: keep it in that huh but did you you catch it did you catch it (laughs) did you did did, Did Mike get it wait did you did you get the thematic resonance of do not go gentle it's a great poem I'm there it's just so many times
1: yeah yeah
0: um we already
1: mentioned it but like I love the old man who lies to people to yeah. <laughs> let them to go be a hero though i am going to say the moment when he's like i'm gonna solve gravity i promise
0: i'm like that's horse crap. <laughs> you're not gonna do it <laughs> you, you in a weird way on. that's a that's a positive right because yeah. it's like you thought in the moment wow really he seems kind of confident and then later it's like oh oh he made it up <laughs> uh toford grace shouting at murph that they have to go is this movie's version of the car falling towards the water in inception where it's like wow this we this as i feel like this has been happening the whole movie like <laughs> I, I literally think if you timed it out I, I i didn't bother checking i really think the entire second half of the movie keeps cutting back to him saying we've gotta go he's coming back anyways yeah I, that's i had not thought of. it's great that's great
1: <laughs> um I don't really get why Dr. Man lies about the planet being unlivable. I feel like he could have just been like, Hey guys, this planet doesn't work. Let's go to the next one. Like, does he think they're not going to take him with him? I I don't. That's an I, interesting. I don't get
0: I'll it. I'll be honest. I never thought about that, but that's a great point. Why didn't he do that? I that know. would have been. Yeah. It's I bizarre. mean, they would have been like, man, screw you buddy. But he's <laughs> yeah, like, what are like, you like, going to do? Kill me. Like, <laughs> like See you later. Matt <laughs> we might be the four only humans left ever. Like you're not, you know, you're, you're gonna deal with it yeah i don't it's know strange. why you didn't do that it's strange um that guy at the end is entirely too excited to show cooper a museum of his own house <laughs> i don't know why. why and it's yeah it? i don't know and i also don't know why he lives there right like he moves in that's weird <laughs> and there's like also all the these guy... screens of old people talking about yeah <laughs> it's weird and and again just to reiterate it that guy is just really excited he's like like very proud i'm just like i, I just feel like that'd be weird i don't know yeah Anyways. i think you're right i think
1: you're right um matthew McConaughey has an entire conversation with the robot as they launch into space and when he goes into the black hole and i did not realize that space and getting through our atmosphere and going through black holes was so easy on the human body so it looked pretty chill it didn't seem like sure. it really impacted them. And I'm wondering if astronauts in other movies and or real life are just sissies.
0: That's the only obvious answer. Yep. Everyone else is just, just, everyone else is like uh, soccer players taking a dive. Oh my God, this is so hard. It's like that. So just get, get your life together. <laughs> this is my last one. This is a plot hole because I noticed it the first time I watched the movie. Uh, I, I I have one possible explanation though. So I'll read you the thing. In the end of the movie, how does old Murphy know about Dr. Brandt in Hathaway on the planet? Because hmm. uh, she says, because she so she gives him the thing. I actually like that scene for what it's worth. But yeah. she gives him the thing um, and she says, no no parents should have to watch their child die. I have my children here. You, sh- you, you have to go. And he says, but where? And she says, she's waiting for you or something like that. You have to go to her. Talking about Dr. Brandt. How does she know? They weren't Definitely. sending any information back. There is one possibility. Maybe she got like a status uh, debriefing. Like the moment yeah, they woke so that her was up the only with her thing limited I, I thought <laughs> is that he maybe, maybe he gave a debriefing. It's not clear how much he tells them by the way, but yeah. maybe he gave a debriefing and in the interval from when, he arrives to when they meet she found out but I don't know why I find that unlikely like it just doesn't seem like that's what happened nope so it's just weird I'm just like how does how does she know that Uh, that's my last one what do you do you have any more I got three quick
1: ones Um, this is gonna be a hot take and it might make you upset but I can live with that uh, TARS the robot its design is stupid the way it walks is stupid and you can't convince me that it can move that
0: fast no that is, that is such a cool design for a robot. No, nope. it's such a great so moment dumb. when it's, it's so when you're dumb. thinking, how is this thing rescue anyone? And then it does the circle thing, and you're like, oh man, yeah, I totally disagree. I think it's great. I love that. Yeah, his I death don't know if is practical. Hit. Yeah, no, I don't think
1: I just don't think it makes any sense. Um, his death was the only death that hit me in the movie. So,
0: I actually agree. I don't know if you're joking. I, no, I'm I agree. Serious. I just, yeah.
1: I love him. I love the personality of the robot. I just, I, I like, like
0: that they have slightly different personalities too. Yeah. That like Case is, is very stoic and Tars is very chaotic. And I love the whole interaction with him and McCoddough. I love the, uh, oh, it's fantastic. What's your, yeah. what's your uh, here? I wrote down Tars. What's your humor setting at a hundred percent. Let's take that down to 75. Yeah. That's yeah. a great line. When he keeps dropping it by 5% later. Cause it keeps talking. He, back. Yeah. Cause he head. keeps making jokes. Yeah. Um,
1: why in the hell are we still playing baseball in the future, especially a on a point. spaceship where that sport obviously doesn't work because balls can fly up to the other homes. <laughs> it's can boring. I... It's already a boring sport, but I don't get why we're like basically like forcing it into this new reality in which it
0: actually also does not work. Also, we saying. we have to believe space is a premium on that thing. Yeah. They really build a, a and it's not even a stadium. It's that just such like a, baseball such a boomer
1: moment. Like Christopher yeah. Nolan being a boomer is just like, and baseball survives. And you're like, Why? But
0: I have why? an addendum to this one too. Uh John Lithgow complains about the popcorn at the baseball game and yeah. says in my day we had bad hot dogs. Take. I bad get take. I get that it would be annoying not having hot dogs at a baseball game. Popcorn's a normal thing for sporting events. Yeah. It's That's just always a bad take. been a thing. Like I I just don't know why he's complaining about that.
1: But yeah. And then my last one is that seeing Adi, uh, my one and a half year old daughter, old and decrepit, and me being the same age would be super weird, and I wouldn't
0: like it. That's a yeah. It's a it. I'll be honest. That scene might have not worked because of that weird factor. It is I, uncomfortable. I think that's that's the actors kind of sell that though. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like it's like they have to be in this extremely weird state of the very old person being the daughter of the very or relatively young person. But they I, I think it works though. And, yeah, I, it and I actually think it might be the best uh, besides the scene where he's watching the age, It it might be my favorite emotional beat of the movie when she sees him and says, I knew you would come back. That actually, that actually hits me. I, I yeah, won't lie. It's I, good. I love that. I'm just okay. saying existentially trippy. Well, that was by far the longest first half of a podcast. If you're still listening, stick around after the break. We're going to get into uh, our essays and talking points. Hey, guys, welcome back. For this next part of the podcast, what we do is Mike and I have each prepared a essay diving into some aspect of this movie Uh, usually with a kind of spiritual bent, uh, I believe, Mike, I'm going first, right? Okay. Well, here we go. So as a kid, I remember having two great loves or maybe just two great obsessions. These were things that I could, that I would not let go of. I would not stop thinking about. I wouldn't stop talking about, as I'm sure you could ask my parents. I wouldn't stop dreaming about. One of them was Star Wars, obviously. The other was NASA. Every single thing about America's space program completely enthralled me. The schoolteacher at the beginning of Interstellar isn't wrong when she says that the moon landings were tremendous works of propaganda. 30 years after Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, that entire adventure still captured the imagination of an 8-year-old as few other things could. But as I got older and read more and studied more and developed my own worldview, an uneasiness settled into the back of my head. Every time I thought about Apollo, every time I thought about space travel, I found myself growing somber and maybe even pessimistic. I found myself accepting the idea that exploration was maybe more of a luxury, that discovery was maybe overrated. In a sense, I think the arguments of Interstellar's secondary antagonists, that is the schoolteacher, Tom, the older brother, the entire society that insists on the need to fix what is around us before setting off into the unknown, I think those arguments are more familiar to us than we might realize. They're repeated by right-wing defense hawks who see no problem with spending thousands of times more on the military than on science or exploration. But they're also repeated by left-wing social reformers who sensibly point out that finances and resources ought to be put towards those suffering from hunger, from discrimination, from poverty. And at some point, this thinking seeped into how I looked back on the glory days of NASA, on Mercury and Gemini and Apollo. Because as brave as they were, as smart, and courageous and good as they may have been, I found it increasingly difficult to look back on those early astronauts, on those early NASA leaders, and to not see them as a relic of an America that could not stomach a black astronaut, any more than most of them could stomach a desegregated school system. A relic of an America that still saw women as more fit to raise children than to fly into space. An America that still believed fully in her destiny as the sole and absolute good in the world, in her inability to wage an unjust war, much less to lose one. And all of this left me wondering what the upshot of our space exploration really was. I was stuck in this problem because I'd always been raised to believe that exploration was a triumph of humanity, that that space exploration was a triumph of America. And this conflicted with my growing awareness of these significant human problems, of these significant American problems, from racism and nationalism to climate change to poverty. I just didn't see what human thing was worth celebrating. And it was in this web of doubt that I latched onto an idea which helped me sort through the muck of reconciling a desire for exploration with an understanding of what we as a nation and what we as a species maybe still lack and still struggle with. I realized that we went with our problems. As far back as early explorers like Vikings and even Columbus, as far back as the humans that crossed the land bridge from Asia to the Americas, we have gone ahead and pushed forward and found new places while being an imperfect species. We carried our own shortcomings with us. That might sound disheartening because it implies that we may never really sort out all of these problems of our humanity. But I think that there's a flip side to that perspective. There's a side of this that mirrors our own personal spirituality to this journey of humanity as a whole. You cannot rid yourself of all of your problems. There will always be something to work on. And staying in one place, trying to put everything right, will just lead to stagnation and decay and death. In my opinion, this is the most powerful metaphor in Interstellar. Again, I think it's actually so easy to understand the motivation of the society which is trying to buckle down to weather the storm to maintain the precious few resources that are left. But Nolan paints a clear long-term picture. This path is death. In attempting to grasp tight to the things that they value, this society will let everything slip away from them. Only by letting go only by embracing the unknown with all of their might can they hope to preserve themselves and the generations after them. For what it's worth, I'm very guilty of this problem. I have an overwhelming desire to make something right before I try anything unknown. I've read that it's characteristic of my personality type. I have a thousand projects in beta forms that will never see the light of day because I feel compelled to perfect them before publishing them. To be quite frank, left to my own devices, this podcast would never, ever have been published. We would have recorded eight or nine episodes, and I would have gotten lost in trying to correct and re-record and edit and perfect them into my platonic vision. That were even here, I am very grateful to my friend and co-host Mike for. And the key is that the lesson holds for all of us the same as it holds for one of us. Obviously, we should be making efforts to solve the real problems around us. Obviously, we cannot all live in dream worlds of exploration and adventure and discovery. But I think it's important that some of us do. Interstellar imagines a world at the extreme edge of this example, but it's true for us as well. Exploration is how we know our fate is not necessarily tied to our circumstance. One day, it might be the only survival option left to us. But in the meantime, it's not a luxury. It's not a frivolity. In the meantime, there is value going forward. Virtues and vices hand in hand. Because the real secret is that we are always moving forward anyways there is no such thing as staying still there is no such thing as the status quo evolution is a constant process sometimes gentle sometimes violent and sitting still is nothing short of stagnation and decay we went with our problems and i think that's what makes that journey mean something in the first place
1: First off, John, I'm I'm grateful that you finally acknowledged that I am the king of this podcast, and uh,
0: yeah, I, I I thought you would latch on to that, and, and I, uh, handled, I wasn't happy with it, and you knew I would handle it with out. grace,
1: so I appreciate your that.
0: Characteristic humility.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, yeah, I think that's spot on, though. Like even joking about, you know, the difference between or the the role I have played in this podcast, like. <laughs> it points to the difference in personality and how equally important that balance is because I'm so often just like, let's go, right. Let's just attack. Yeah. And that's so deeply, um, there is a moment in which it's like, uh, how do I put this? Exploration without dealing with any of my problems is also equally problematic. Right. Cause yeah. suddenly it's like, yeah. I'm moving, I'm just taking them with me in a way that, I probably don't need to like, I actually could probably still explore, but maybe deal with some of my issues so that they don't overflow into the new space that I'm moving into. But I just think
0: it's a, it was a great essay and I think that's spot on. Thank you. Uh, Do you have any questions? I think, think, but, well, yeah. And and real quick to even, to even bounce off a little bit of that. I think it's funny because as with so many things we talk about with spirituality, there's a balance question here. I think that's a little bit what I was trying to get at. Yeah. I even think about, I I've had the, I would say misfortune of working often behind self or sorry often beneath uh, self-proclaimed entrepreneurs. Sure. Uh, we don't have to get into our own litigation of the word entrepreneur, but I think that that became culturally this kind of personality. I'm sure, listening, you know these kind of people who are just just go focused and just obsessed with we just have to do the next thing. It doesn't matter if it's not ready. We have to get out the door. I am not like that. I find that very frustrating. But a huge part of my own personal development in the last five or 10 years has been, first of all, acknowledging where sometimes those people are right. Yeah. Where sometimes I have been in a state of, like, you know, where, where I'm just like, yeah, quite frankly, left to me, this thing never would have gotten off the ground uh, with places I've worked at and stuff. And it, I needed the guy, uh, the other person to say, it's just gonna go so you make it work uh but like we said, it's a balance because I've also been under people where they desperately needed someone as powerful as them to say, hey, take a breath, yeah. you know yeah like like you are it's exactly what you said we you are you do need to to sometimes take note of your problems and and taking all this back to the essay i I think that is kind of. That strange thing that has to happen in society—I I don't think it can be governed. It—it it has to almost happen organically. But I, you know, it—it it is difficult to answer. Obviously, I don't really care. Uh, spoiler: If you don't know this, I'm relatively, not even relatively, I'm pretty left in all, almost all my thinking. So that right-wing argument I presented earlier, of you know, spending so much money on on defense, doesn't really do anything for me. The more damning one for me is that social reform perspective. Why are we spending? Why is the ISS the most expensive single thing ever made? Why aren't we putting more money into any other number mm, of things? Yeah. Which is a great I, I think that is a much that argument holds a lot more weight with me. Yeah. This is the only way I can reconcile it. Yeah. Um, which is that I think we have to. We just have to sacrifice something to have people pushing on the edge of what we know at all times. Because if you don't have that, again, you're still moving forward. You're just moving away from growth. Yeah. Um, you're just decaying. So. Well, and I think uh, it's it's like you said, it's evolution, change is the
1: only constant. And to some extent, the whole "let's not move forward until we fix all the things that are wrong now" is just a delusion because it's it's yeah. trying to act like that constant of change doesn't exist. And yeah, and there is a balance that when you embrace it is really just accepting reality as it is, that it's a both and proposition, right? And so yeah, I disagree with you. That is also the one that hits me the hardest, but it's also um, something that needs to be overcome in its own way, so
0: yeah. Yeah, and for its part, Interstellar, this is a great metaphor in the movie because yeah. you're looking at the people on Earth and you're like, you are literally dying. There, There is a hard endpoint to your world And yet you still have that motivation of let's shore up resources. Let's try to weather this. Let's it's such a human response, Um, but it's not necessarily the right one. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it, it's funny as you were talking, I was actually thinking about an increasingly, gosh, I don't even know how to say it's like a problematic way of thinking when it comes to spirituality, but really when it comes to growth, Um, that I'm going to be honest with John, I don't know how to navigate, which is, you know, there has been such a movement in religion historically to produce self-loathing and shame, right? To essentially hate who you are, um, and to see it as fallen in all these ways and to essentially not accept yourself. So there's been a pendulum swing that I think is good and necessary, of self-love right it's about loving yourself as you are right where you are but it is interesting like even in this conversation of evolution and change kind of the the problematic root of that 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 can expose where it does in its own way spiritually kind of cut off exploration in terms of who i yeah. could become or how i could improve or am i accepting things that are costing me something um it's just a fascinating balance, right, in the spiritual world of how do you balance self-love and, and acceptance of who you are with this spiritual exploration of who you want to become or who maybe even even what in your life needs to be removed if you are to be a fully healthy and functioning human being. Yeah, Does that make sense? But I, as you're talking, I was just like does. really hit by that, struck by that that challenge, and I don't yeah. know how to navigate it, so maybe I'll bounce that back to you.
0: Yeah, sure. I. It's funny. I. We. have talked about this before. It. It is a. A real thing, and it, it is very, very difficult to navigate. We both, I think, have, especially in the context of religion. But I don't think it's limited to religion. Mm-mm. But especially in the context of religion, we have both encountered, I would say, both of those sides. Yeah. Of the the self hatred perspective and the, uh, for lack of a better term, over self love perspective problem, um. And it's, I, I don't have obviously a solution. It, it's a complicated kind of thing. Having said that, I, I I do tend to think that one of the best ways of going about it is kind of something I was saying earlier about the the nature of setting off into the unknown. Yeah, I think mm. that, I think that you get you get into a problem with the self love side when you feel like you already know everything there is to know about yourself, mm. right? Like you should love, you should love yourself. You really should. You you should think highly of yourself and have a self-respect, but you also shouldn't make the mistake of believing that you totally understand yourself. And I think that that's where it gets problematic. And that's where it gets into that problem of stagnation, because uh, you're not going to grow if you think you don't have anywhere to grow into. So it's about, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm saying all of this, I'm not good at it, right? Yeah. yeah. But. I, but I think that the thing I try to work on is is not boxing myself in of, of thinking I could grow into things that I don't recognize. And actually, I would hope I do. I would hope that I, I you know, don't have a fully formed picture of where I'm going. Um, and, and in a sense that I think that what that does functionally is it helps you reconcile those two ideas of one, I am, I do need to accept who I am. Two, I need to be able to grow into something different. Yeah. So yeah. you're reconciling both of those. And I think largely it's just by holding very loosely what that growth looks like. Mm. So I don't, I don't, you know, if I try to grasp it very tightly, we get into that problem of, of, uh, you know, actually self-hatred because then it, that's where that's coming from is I know so deeply what I think I should be and I'm not, and I suck at it and I'm bad. And so it's like again, as you hold that loosely, you give yourself the chance to grow, to become a better person. But you also aren't creating the, the formula for hating yourself, for for being mad that you're falling short, because uh, you already have a, a goalpost, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I was yeah, thinking huh. of I was
1: thinking of the Thomas Merton prayer as you were saying that. Yeah, um, which, absolutely. Let me just read it. It's My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death. I will not fear for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And I think that's a fascinating balance, right? Where there's like this acceptance that almost of like value, right? That I am loved, that I am worthy, that I am acceptable, that I'm, you know, all these things that I think the the shoulds that we put into it, I should be this, like it gets past that of this foundational, you know, self love for just that I exist. Right. But then at the same time, it acknowledges like, but I don't really always know who I am or why I do what I do. Like, I don't have this firm expectation of what I need to be or who I am even right now Mm. in every moment. And it's almost like a humility that that is grounded in that kind of baseline of love that allows us to keep moving forward with like a trust, but also a curiosity and also a yeah, I'm just going to stick with humility, a humility of unknowing the final destination or the final conclusion or the final even person of who I'm gonna be, right? Um but I do think that it's just a fascinating balance. I don't know. I I think that's a really interesting point. Through our eyes, the universe is perceiving itself. Through our ears, the universe is listening to its harmonies. We are the witnesses through which the universe becomes conscious of its glory, of its magnificence. That's a quote from Alan Watts. To put it succinctly, we are the universe observing itself. That quote and idea is one of maybe three or four in my lifetime that I have discovered that has truly existentially changed me, that has impacted me to the core, turning upside down my understanding of really everything, and through my engagement with it, my reflection on it, it's one of the few ideas that has truly produced a changing of my consciousness. To get why, you have to understand how wildly different this is from 99% of the ideologies, narratives, and beliefs given to us by our Western world, or in my specific case, the Western evangelical world that shaped me personally as a child. Whether intended or not, The intertwining of American culture and that spiritual tradition of evangelicalism gave me a vision of myself, others, my world, God, that was grounded in one thing, an innate worldview and consciousness of separation. In the evangelical church, there was a fundamental separation between me as a human being and God and between me and other people. There were evangelical Christians, the good guys, and then there was everyone else, the bad guys, spiritual tribalism. And American culture fed that fundamental separation. Intense individualism saturates everything. My individual needs were my first priority, I was taught. My individual production was my purpose for existing. And my individual problems were my own, created by my own will and failures, just like everyone else. Even my destiny was defined by individualism. Destiny was not something that people shared because as an individual, We all had our own unique destiny that was solely up to us to parse out, work for, achieve, or fall short of. And that's all before I even get to the tribal separation of American exceptionalism. In all things, separation. But more than anything, what they both taught was that I was fundamentally separate from my universe, from the space, world, and physical ground that my individual self inhabited. In the church, I was taught that I was a spiritual being, a soul, which was fundamentally different, better than, and detached from the physical, fallen, corrupt world that I lived in. This place that was to be escaped when I die and go somewhere else better and more spiritual. This place that was just some physical heap that God would one day throw in the dumpster of hell. And in America, these things, the universe and the world, were just objects tools to be used in subservience to my will, to those other more elevated values of me, my production, my pleasure, the pursuit of my own individual destiny. Fundamentally, in both, my universe and this world in which I lived was separate from me. And this quote, and others like it, was so wildly counter to that. What do you mean I am the universe observing itself? And though alien to me, it had an enormous impact on me because, quite frankly, it just made more sense. It made more sense when I looked at science. When I looked at the Big Bang, this moment when all matter, energy, everything was united in a singularity, which exploded outward, expanding, coalescing, ultimately taping sh- taking shape in the matter that existed in time and space that comprises me. A piece of that singularity, living within and alongside other pieces of what that singularity's energy created, reflecting back on everything that was once in that singularity. And it made more sense when I looked at spirituality, faith, God, the incarnation, all of it, everything grounded in the belief that all things, including me, came from the same singular source, that we're all made of the same matter, that we all move, breathe, and find our being within the same larger reality that is God, as the Apostle Paul said. It made more sense even as I learned about my own Christian tradition and how wildly it rejected the separation I was taught was actually the core of the faith, but that's for another day. More than anything, however, it made more sense when I looked at the problems that swirled around me. When I looked at ecological collapse, I didn't see something that humanity was separate from, that I was separate from. No, I saw something that was deeply intertwined with me, everyone, everything. When I looked at systemic issues of injustice, racism, and poverty that robbed individuals of their destinies and lives, systems that they did not choose as individuals to be a part of, that they did not will into being. When I looked at those things, I did not see separate individuals acting as sole masters of their own fates, unimpeded by the choices of others. No, in these things and many more, I saw an interconnected web that impacted everyone. I saw problems that were anything but simple equations of siloed, separated, individual lives. I saw problems that existed precisely because of how inherently interconnected we all are. I saw us, in everything we do, as part of, not separate from, a great whole. The same universe. And in that, first my consciousness began to transform. I am not separate from the universe, but rather comprised of it existing within it, part of it. I go as it does, and what happens to it happens to me. And as Jesus implored us to realize what happens to you, my neighbor, happens to me. And second, I realized that the separation I was taught was in fact the problem that spirituality was meant to root out. The delusion that separation exists between myself as an individual, others and my universe at all. This thing I had been taught was the solution, was in fact the root of the problem out of which all brokenness seemed to spill. Believing that there is separation between me and my world is what allows me and you to turn it into an object, to use and abuse it as a tool for our production and my singular destiny, not realizing or caring that I I am destroying the very thing I exist within, the air I breathe, myself in the process. Believing there is separation between me and others is what allows me to turn you into an object, to use and abuse you as a tool for my production and destiny, to see those people as subservient and less than me, and their goals, lives, and humanity as separate from my own and then to act accordingly. A flawed vision of separation between myself and God even turned God and spirituality into an object, not relational, Not impactful of who I am here and now, but just something to be obtained and to use to alter my destiny when I leave this universe and when I die. And more than anything, I believe this is what Interstellar gets most right. It reminds us that we are the universe observing itself, and it tries to wrestle with the implications that are created when we forget that truth and get that wrong. As I watched it, I kept recalling the consciousness transformation described by many astronauts, a phenomenon called the overview effect, reported over and over. It's described as a mountaintop experience or a moment of epiphany that comes when they would look back at the earth from outside of it for the first time. Soon after passing through the atmosphere, they look and they see the earth and it's this beautiful blue green vibrant world and they describe being filled with two major emotions deep awe and a profound awareness of the connectedness of everything on earth. They watch the clouds move over continents and environments merge together and they have this powerful awareness that all life exists together within this shared beautiful world and they just feel the awe and the majesty of it. But then as they move farther and farther away as that big earth increasingly becomes a small pale blue dot floating in the cold empty in uninhabitable space, they describe that awe colliding with a very different but equally overpowering set of feelings. First, an overwhelming sense of fragility. They see our thin atmosphere separating us from all that darkness and they are slammed with a realization that our existence as a species of all species of our world is only maintained through an incredibly fragile balance. This thin, little line of atmosphere and then second they report feeling soon after that a sense of overwhelming anger urgency and motivation to do something to save our world to return and urge people to realize how precarious and connected all life is and those who have experienced this report never being the same It changes their worldview, their consciousness, forever. Astronaut Edgar Mitchell put it best when he said, You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. Interstellar despite its flaws, gets the overview effect and how deeply we need this change of consciousness. It gets that our problems are not created because each of us, as these separate, siloed people, separate from one another in the universe, have failed to pursue their own individual destinies well. They realize that our problems were created by that sense of separation itself, and that they will only be resolved when we see that delusion at the heart of it fall away. And we expand our consciousness beyond it and it captures i think what this might look like it captures the wonder of cooperation and progress created by motivation birth from awakening to our connectedness union and shared destiny it captures the urgency and the collapse it depicts and it captures the revelation that we too must find where the awe, wonder, fragility, motivation, urgency propels us to the truth that we aren't saved from our problems by someone else out there, but rather through the same species that created those problems and their delusions of separation, experiencing a change of consciousness, one grounded in a deep, expansive vision of union with each other in their universe, and evolving through it to be able to care for and save it all, which always included themselves, after all. We need to see our problems as our problems, not just yours and mine, and to respond by moving forward together. To realize that ultimately, to save our species and this planet from the self-destruction our delusions have created, we need to embrace our own overview effect so we too can see everything in its connectedness, shared destiny, and union. So we too can realize that we are in fact, the universe perceiving itself and then act accordingly.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I read, it's funny, the universe observing itself never hit me as much. I read in one of his books, he said, you are this room looking at itself. And something about the immediacy of that, like, just always hit me a lot harder. Yeah. Um but I'm there. I love that. I love all your points in that essay. You, you know it was a good essay because I kept writing down notes that you that were then your next point. So I don't really have <laughs> a sense. I don't have I only have a few things in, in reaction if that's okay before you Yeah, before dive you in. Have anything else. But um but yeah, I I, I really, really resonate with that entire idea of how we developed this strange sense of separateness from everything around us. And, and I would also go farther. And I I think Watts explores this too, but I I would also go farther and say that the nature of how we assign that separateness to other things is also part of that problem. Yeah, And I think it kind of, it kind of starts flirting with the, the word attachment, which also comes up a lot for us. Um, I think you could even say that from a from a Buddhism perspective, because you know Buddhism cautions you against forming attachments, is what they call it. And we've kind of discussed before exactly what that means, because I think a lot of people get it wrong. And I, I think that this is maybe even an interesting way to look at that. That you know, attachment, I would say, is arguably assigning that same separateness to things around you. So attachment is is you perceiving Adi, your daughter as something that is not born of the universe that you are in right yeah and sort of esteeming it so highly that it, it almost can't be touched yeah and that when when, when i it that way it makes it very obvious why forming attachments be, is negative because it it grants you this this warped vision of the world around you where it's all these things that are untouchable by circumstance which is just inaccurate because yeah. we are all born of our universe, and, and, and we are in a world which is just the evolution of what came before it. And you're right, it absolutely leads to a disregard for, for ecology and, and for humans and for so many things, ironically, because you don't perceive them as being uh, fragile, right? Yeah. You don't perceive them as being touchable, as being tangible as being something that can be erased as quickly as it was made. Um so yeah, I, I think it, it's one of the most important ideas of spirituality is this idea of you you came out of the circumstances that are around you. You are not a separate thing. And it reminds me a little bit because you didn't really dive into into this side of it, but but you know, like you said, we we, we both grew up in the conservative evangelical church and the classic response that that at least i became very familiar with was well if that was true then what meaning is there in that like if you if 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 you believe that i'm just the product of all of this universe that's been around me then that then that makes me feel like nothing then you know i i prefer believing that i am special that there is a god who breathed into me And that makes me different and set apart. And it was always fascinating to me because, in a weird way, I found much more meaning in that first interpretation. Yeah, I found it actually. I don't know. I just think that that assigning meaning in that in that context, or or I should say, locating that sort of balance of I am both unique and myself, and also a complete product of the, of the world around me and of the universe that's preceded me. I think that that gives me a much stronger sense of meaning. It gives me a much stronger sense of purpose within the world because now this is all for real. This isn't, it's like you said, this isn't just the place where I hopefully get to escape later. This is where I am. This, I am here really. And that, just means a lot more to yeah. me in a weird way. I don't even have a good argument for it. Cause I'm just saying that that resonates better for me. Yeah. And if it doesn't for someone, I guess I'm just like, well, okay. I, I, I don't know that that always landed very well for me. Well, and it's, it's funny because
1: it's, you know, I hinted at it that as I learned more about, you know, especially the old Testament, but in the new Testament, basically Christian tradition and Jewish tradition. What's alarming is how deeply those ideas you just stated are in the the text of the books that they hold up you know yeah but also in just the the foundational beliefs that they're trying to get people to hold like I remember you know, it two simple ideas and I won't bore people with theology but the first one was when someone was just like why do we always talk about the biblical story as starting with something going wrong and then it's mm-hmm. about it yeah. being made right and he's like no it starts with it being good and then we break it. And then it's about getting back to good. And it's amazing how that little thing changes so much about how you see our world and the value of it and the value of your work in it. It's like, it started good. It has the potentials baked into it to be good. It isn't just like, hey, you were born into something that's run amok and it's all bad and it's gonna get thrown away one day. Um, But even more powerfully than that is like, you were just talking about, You know, the Genesis story and the the poem that is the Garden of Eden and then the first seven day account. And it's like that story is about humanity being made from the dirt of the earth that's already there. And then it's animated by divine breath, which, by the way, is given to all things that have life. That's not just yeah. human beings. It's like you are literally the matter of this universe brought to life, like the birds and the cows and everything else. <laughs> and, and the idea of what sets humanity apart, like image and likeness, and again, I'm not going to get into boring biblical stuff, but those are both about the tasks given to humanity to take care of the world, to expand the creative work of making things reach its potential, to fulfill basically the space that's already abundant with life so that you by engaging with it in a creative way, make it even more capable of producing more and more abundant life, right? So it's about a Mm. task. It's not about your unique identity in so many ways, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And I just think that's so important because even within that text, it's like, hey, you have this consciousness, this ability to be logical, to think as a human being, to engage your world in a way that changes it. And that is like incredibly unique, but also you come from dirt. You are a dirt man. You are the matter of this universe. You are sustained by breath that you did not choose. Your life was not like something you chose to inhabit. And holding those two things is where you get to the point where you say thank you for existence and engage with it in a healthy, productive way, right? Which is what spirituality is trying to lead you to. But it's just wild to me that we so deeply have lost that story in favor of like, you're a king and a queen and you're a special person and you forget that you're made of dust
0: right now it's um, it's funny you say that though because i i agree that we've lost that narrative but it actually makes complete sense that we've lost that narrative sure. because yeah. that's a very that's you know we keep saying the word balance but that's a balance and balances aren't very easy to teach i think is the problem yeah and they're it's much easier <laughs> yeah yeah it's, yeah it's much easier to present either extreme so it you know we talked about that there's the perspective that gets pushed of, you know, the, the self-hatred, the you're not worth it. You're, you know, you, you are lowest of dirt, whatever. There's a the perspective of, like you said, we're kings. We can do whatever we want. We're all, you know, this is all fine. Both of them are rooted in the same separateness and the same uh, attachment. And both of them are very easy to sell, frankly. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. that it's and it's weird because I think maybe we forget that the first one is easy to sell as well. Yeah, but it is, and and you've seen it across religions, you've seen it across philosophies, um, and so I think that that's the struggle is that we're talking about finding a balance of those two perspectives, and I I just don't know if there you can even I, I don't even know if it's possible to institutionalize that because yeah, by definition yeah. it it, it uh, resents institutionalization, yeah. So it's it's I, and in a way I you know it's sad but also Means that there will always be that spiritual work to do. That spirituality is not something that we're that will be solved, and that three hundred years from now, you know, assuming that they—or I should say, a million years from now—assuming that whatever lives bears any resemblance to us, it will still be talking about these same problems. Yeah, it will still have these same things because they are innate of the universe. And it is, like we said, the growth and working through them that is the value, so. Mike, I forgot to ask, were you a NASA kid? Oh yeah, like, were you were you Dude, there? Space okay. man.
1: I mean, you're talking about a, okay. a kid of a dad who was just like, "Hey, watch Star Wars. Watch." Uh... I mean, I remember watching the Abyss. I remember watching yeah, yeah Apollo the thirteen. Apollo thirteen, a thousand Apollo 13 times. came out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was I just, checking.
0: I was my dad I was loved there, yeah.
1: exploration movies, so
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it is funny. It, it's a very kind of sweet thing. I've noticed in this podcast how much we both get our so much of this comes from our dads right like like because yeah. i think my dad was the same way he was very big on all of that uh he is very big on all of that but but yeah i was just curious because because it was such a big part like we used to go to the kennedy space center that was always my first choice when it was like where are we going to go on vacation because uh we you know in florida it's like oh well we could drive to kennedy space center and that's awesome i still love going there okay thank you guys so much for listening uh, we have a final question we've each prepared for the other person. Before we get to that, though, uh, next episode, Mike, what movie are we going to be doing? We are watching the animated classic Spirited Away. The anime classic from our boy, Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, I, had a, I had a friend, by the way, a, a new friend I, I met the other day called me out very quickly on assigning my boy to other people. And every time I say it now, I feel kind of bad. Well, now at any rate, Miyazaki (laughs) is definitely, yeah, no problem. Miyazaki is definitely our boy though. I'm okay with that. Uh, 2001 Japanese anime film uh, actually became pretty big in the U S though, too. Unlike his other movies, he's always been big in Japan. uh, But this was sort of a watershed moment, I think for his international acclaim. So I'm excited about that. Uh, Before that, though, final question. Uh, I'll go first. Mike, this is a would you rather.
1: Would you rather
0: eat only corn for one full year or go five years with your text notification sound on your phone being Matthew McConaughey shouting, Murph, (laughs) Murph. (laughs) Murph. <laughs> and you can't... And also, you can't silence your phone during those five years. <laughs> I mean, so only I... <laughs> corn or the text notification.
1: What you got? Um, I like corn. So, and I... I mean, you know this about me, John. I am someone who is, like, easily annoyed and easily frustrated. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I have a very short fuse. I think I would pick the corn because I would... I would probably break my phone and just live in the woods like and then I'd be I, eating so something a, similarly gross to just corn anyways so
0: you know I may have made it too easy for you then because I initially had it 1 year for both but that seemed obvious to me that I wouldn't that I would obviously do the text notification for a year that's why I made it 5 because I was like
1: yeah that's I was tough. like
0: that's a that's a closer one but w- that's just tough. out of curiosity if they were both 1 year would you still go for corn Oh uh, no! I think I can make it one okay, year. Okay. I, oh, God, okay.
1: I don't know though.
0: <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> like,
1: that's that would drive me crazy, dude. Would um, that be rough? Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't Anyways. like it. I would not like it at all. I can I can tell you definitively that that would make me very upset the first day.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, I, that's true. You would get through. Actually, I would be okay with it until I got to one of those days where you're in a group text. And everyone's just like popping off and you're just trying to watch a movie. Yep. <laughs> it's like what is this? What is wrong with you? Stop talking. Murph. 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 Don't leave also, me. Murph. I, I, this Don't doesn't me apply leave to like you. This, <laughs> this doesn't that's this doesn't apply to you as much as me cuz I have more social anxiety. I also thought about having to explain that to oh, people. Oh god, how many times you'd have to do it too. Well, and, it'd be, and I, I did make the stipulation you can't silence your phone. So, yeah. like, you're in a movie theater, and it's like... <laughs> I couldn't go sorry, to movies. Sorry, everyone. You can not go to movies. Oh, my gosh. So, anyways. Or you'd have to, like, leave your phone to your car or find Man. all these weird ways of getting around it. It's I'll be rough, honest. But this is
1: kind of just exposing our dependence on technology, because the answer is just I would leave my phone around, but I can't imagine that universe. But that's so terrifying. I'm just, yeah, just going to eat corn. <laughs> Anyways, what's uh what you got for me? Mine is incredibly similar. Um, okay, and it is a it is a hypothetical. I'm gonna need you to imagine. So yeah, John, if the blight was real, this is a two part question. How long would you make it as a farmer, and what would you like least about being a farmer? And then, mm-hmm. what food that became the only type left would piss you off the most?
0: Ooh. Those are good. Let me think. Uh, the answer to the first one is not very long in everything.
1: <laughs> I, I wouldn't last
0: very long, and I'd hate everything about being a farmer. Do you know when McConaughey says like, "What's the line? It's it's not. It's whatever. It's necessary. It's yeah. You know what, what was that lead up again? It was. I'm going blank. Oh, it's not oh, not oh, possible. Oh. It's necessary. Yeah, yeah. That would be that would be me, except that I would say it's i can't do it though it would just be impossible <laughs> but I'm i would out. just volunteer i'd be like honestly just kill me because like then you don't have another mouth to feed like we might as well just take care of this now it'd be bad i, I don't think i could do it at all yeah uh, yeah uh the second question i actually at first i thought of foods i don't like obviously like i thought of like beets and whatever. I think the worst one though would be something like garlic or onions because those are very good with other things. And I think oh. the frustration would be onion. worse, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And, I love but you onion. know what I mean? Wouldn't yeah. the frustration be worse? That's like I could make amazing meals with this and any other thing to add it to, but That's by good. itself, I just there's not that much to do. <sighs> That'd be so frustrating. Yeah. What a world. I Anyways, think mine, uh,
1: mine would be a yeah. peas because I hate things that have changes in consistency as you eat them. So like when you yeah. break the skin and then it's squishy, ugh. But you're right. Oh, my gosh. I really think something that's like...
0: And consider, like, I'm sure there's salt and pepper, but there can't be butter. There's no dairy. Oh, God. Because there's no... Peas. So, like, oh, oh No, I
1: think you're right. I think a supplementary food would be the worst. Where, like, I used to love this as a seasoning, and now I'm just eating raw (laughs) onion all all the time.
0: (laughs) (sighs) Anyways, if you would like to live in that world, just uh, keep voting for climate deniers. And then, uh, well... (laughs) We're going to come up on that real quick. Just continuing our project of alienating our audience. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Mike, thank you so much for the conversation. As always, I'm Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet. Thank you guys for listening. We will see you on the next episode. To infinity and beyond. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs>
1: Do not go gently. Wait, hold on. John, John. One more. One more. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Go. Do not go gently into that good night. (laughs) True or false? Wait, wait. True or false? This movie would have been better with Bane playing the part of Michael Caine. True. Not Tom Tom Hardy. True. Bane. I want Bane Bane in there. And no one calls attention to it.